My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Beasts of the Southern Wild. I am joined this week by Christian McCluskey. No, you could just call me Nazy. <laughs> and with a Beasts of the Southern Wild tagline, Kelly Wand. Tom, tonight's Beasts of the Southern Witch phrase is brought to you by AT&T. Rethink the possible. <laughs> so we're sponsored, you're saying? Just this week. I want to impress Bruce, the rocket surgeon. Well, speaking of which, uh, we normally, one of the, I don't know if you'd call it a shortcoming, one of the features of this podcast <laughs> is that you get the, the perspective of three 40-something overeducated white dudes. How is that not a shortcoming? So well, we're going we're gonna to shake that up a little week and instead bring you a fourth 40-something overeducated white dude uh, named Bruce Garrick. Bruce, welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast. Hello, cineasts. <laughs> First of all, oh we don't, we, yeah, we don't use that kind of language on this podcast. Maybe on your, uh, you know, if you're listening to like the Janet Maslin podcast or Pauline Kyle, then you could use that word, not here. It, that's not what you guys are. It's just, it sounds dirty. What are oh, we, Tom? Yeah. We're uh, wonks, maybe? Maybe, yeah. I'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> that does yeah. sound dirty as well, yeah. It's disgusting. Mm. Uh, Bruce Garrick, you, uh, first of all, you, it's your fault we're doing this podcast for mm. a couple, couple of reasons. Uh, actually, no, one reason. What, you're, you came to this movie before any of us did and just sent us a little elliptical email saying, I think it basically just said, hey, you guys should see this. Um, why on earth would you, first of all, why would you A, go see this movie, and then B, think that we should see it? Now, without giving away spoilers, if you're listening and you haven't seen the movie, we're not going to spoil anything yet. So, Bruce, why did you go to this movie, and why on earth did you think we should see it? Well, I thought that, um, actually, I throw the blame back on you, Tom, because this, I wanted to see this movie because the alternative was something you liked. So, <laughs> I thought that I really shouldn't go see that. Uh, but my wife and I were walking in uh, in Manhattan last month, and um, we it was uh, I'd gotten out of work, and uh, I was uh, we were just walking down the street. We'd had dinner, and it was I think it was a Friday night, and we we're trying to find something to do. We said, "Hey, why don't we see a movie?" So uh, we of course used our uh, smartphones to find a, a movie in the immediate area, which was on the Upper West Side, and it basically came down to two things: we could either go see. Um, this thing called Beasts of the Southern Wild, which we didn't have any idea what it was, hmm? or Snow White and the Huntsman. <laughs> <laughs> and so, wait a minute. How is it? Hold on. How is it that, that talk about black and white? <laughs> Very good. How is it that you're in Manhattan and those are your only two choices? Those are the two choices at at the theater that we were basically standing outside of, or we were, we were about two blocks from, and we didn't really want to get was. You know, it was kind of I don't know. It was like seven and thirty-ish or something. There was it was we didn't want to get on the train. We didn't want to go find something. Basically, it was we were two blocks from Lincoln something cinema on uh, I think it was on Broadway or Columbus. I can't remember up in six like seventy something, and uh, we were just like okay, uh, we can see this movie that starts in ten minutes or this movie that starts in fifteen minutes. One is called. Beast of the Southern Wild, and the other one is this thing called Snow White and the Huntsman. And I think we're both like, hey, didn't we just listen to a podcast about that? And it's like, yeah, Tom really liked it. We're like, okay, we're not going to see that one. So uh, let's just see this other movie. And uh, 
So wait a minute. So, I was expecting that you either heard about it or that it was like of particular, like the subject matter was of interest nope. to you, or maybe some some highfalutin artsy friend had recommended. You were literally like the people who walk up to the box office and ask the person selling tickets, "What should I see?" Except that you did it with your smartphones. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the artsy friend said, "See Snow White," so he ignored that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I was like, "Oh well, I already know what that is." I mean, I, I when I listen to, you, I, I figure I never. All the movies that you guys see, I never am going to end up seeing myself. So I already, already listened to the podcast and all the spoilers. So I thought, ah, that kind of, you know, that that movie's over for me. So uh, let's go see this movie. And I love that. Uh, and a uh, story I always tell uh, tell friends of mine is the uh, time that Tom, you and I, and <clears throat> Dingus, and and uh, some other people went to uh, see the wrestler. Mm-hmm. And up until basically up until the opening credits rolled, I had no idea what movie we were seeing. <laughs> because you guys basically wouldn't tell me what movie we were going to, right. and uh, you wouldn't give me the ticket. You basically like said, you know, party. yeah, and then then uh, you kind of sh- hustled me into the theater without uh, uh, without like don't look up there, and then just we kind of went in, and then we sat there, and I was like, huh, I wonder what movie. But that's the best kind of movie, and 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 Beast of Southern Wild for me was exactly like that because we just walked in, sat down. And I had no idea what was going to happen, and uh, it turned out pretty well. Now, the reason that I told you guys to see it is that um, I mean, there, there are a bunch of reasons that we'll talk about, but I think the movie um, has some contentious points, and I thought that that would mm. be a, an interesting uh, uh, thing for you guys to kind of throw around. So uh, that's why I sent the sent you guys no, the email. <laughs> all right there we go uh, <laughs> kelly one has proved it uh all right well before we get to those contentious points because i want to hear about that i i'm pretty sure at least three out of four of us on this podcast are going to widely recommend this like I, I i think you'll be hearing a lot more about this movie from me over why the did you hate it so? how dare you uh but i just want to say if you're listening and you haven't seen it and you're like oh they're going to talk about a movie i haven't seen let me turn off the podcast before you turn it off uh I, I want to say you should see it. Uh, uh, Kelly and Dingus, are you with me there? Like, you would recommend this movie, right? Uh, yeah, I've, I haven't told them what, what we saw yet, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay, and, and so, so Bruce, well, we'll get, and we'll, we'll get to Bruce in a moment. But before we do that, uh, Dingus, what did we see? <laughs> <laughs> Who structured this? Again. Just, just give us the basics. Sorry, like, let's say, you. let's say you're at the other end of Bruce's smartphone, and he's just dialed in, and he's like, "What is this beast of the Southern Wild thing? What information would you pass along to such a person?" Wait, which analogy are we on now? The okay, if you turn off the podcast or the guy with the smartphone. No, you can still oh. leave the podcast on. Dingus okay. will not spoil anything. The yet. Smartphone's up, and you're still listening. Bruce, Bruce is standing there with uh, his dad, and he's asking the guy who runs the box office. What should I see? And I'm the guy behind the box office telling him. And Dingus, what do you say? I say, this week we saw Beasts of the Southern Wild, a 2012 fantasy drama movie Mm. about a hush puppy who lives with her daddy in the bathtub. (laughs) It was directed by Ben Zeitlin and written by him and Lucy Alibar based on her one-act play, Juicy and Delicious. Uh, uh, Sounds like a two-actor to me. (laughs) It stars Quivenjane Wallace, Dwight Henry... Gina Montana and Jovan Hathaway. Think it's back up a minute. Back up a minute. Let's hear that. Let's hear the lead actress's name. (laughs) No, let's hear the lead actress's name one more time. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Do that again, please. Quivenjane Wallace. Nice. Good. Quivenjane isn't nearly as hard as I thought it would be. You said that so white. 
that's, that's my way. That's how I roll. All right, so go ahead, Dingus. I cut you off. So there's the cast. What else do you have for us? Uh, all I've got is that Beasts of the Southern Wild is rated PG-13. Mm. What? Yeah, well, get, for, get ready for this, Kelly. Anyway. For thematic material, including <laughs> child imperilment. Oh, my God. As Some disturbing to... images, as opposed to child endangerment or child exposurement, I Fairy guess. Fairy tales, any of them. Right. So child imperilment, some disturbing images, language, and brief sensuality. What? Huh? I thought there was going to be an alcohol disclaimer. There's a fair bit of drinking in there. Those ratings I really, sick. I really did, too, especially given the one scene with alcohol. But I think that that's capped under child imperilment. Ah, right. When you let a child drink some of your beer. Good point. Imperilment's the word? It is now. You're welcome, Internet. <laughs> all right, so uh, let's see. Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oh, Dingus, I'm sorry. Was that it? That's all I got. Okay, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, you can't really talk about how much this movie is made because it hasn't had a wide release. It's never been in more than a few hundred theaters. Uh, it opened early this summer, and it's sort of been moving around. You can probably find it at an art house near you. Uh, but all told, it's made about $9 million so far domestically. Uh, critically speaking, on Metacritic, which rates the, uh, which, which gives the average rating of reviews that give ratings, uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild is at 86. Uh. On Rotten Tomatoes, which gauges the percentage of reviews that are positive, Beasts of the Southern Wild has an 85. Oh. However, uh. now, now, however, get this. I, <laughs> that is exciting. Here's some interesting uh, math for you. When you go to Rotten Tomatoes, if you just look at that, you know, that 85% is just all kinds of random critics, just people at little crappy small market newspapers, whatever, uh, local TV stations, blogs, that kind of thing. If you click on top critics, it narrows it down to the more, we like to say, discriminating uh, critics. Yeah. Uh, when you when you click that on, on Rotten Tomatoes, Beast of the Southern Wild goes from 85 down to 76 Mm-hmm. <laughs> out of out of 37 reviews, nine of them are negative uh, for the top mm-hmm. critics. So, there's so the masses like it, but the smartest people are divided. That does seem to be the case. Of the smart people, yeah, it's sort of like you know, uh, two out of one well, out of. Harmon White's one of those people. So Is that foreshadowing of the? Po- oh wait, no, you guys already gave it away. What? No, not altogether. I'm That's the only right. one who piped up when Tom asked. Mm-hmm. I'm also wondering how many people went in like Bruce went in, because uh, of the people that were (laughs) surrounding me one of the times I saw it, at least two of the couples were saying, I don't know what this is. What is this? Oh, I had people walking out. I had people walking out in droves when I saw it. I mean, there were there were literally uh, like like four different moments where like two people just got up and sort of waltzed out. It was a very tree of life kind of thing where I think they wearing berets. Of course, the beret wearers would stay, but it, it seemed like couples who came in expecting some kind what? of like fan Snow White movie or something. I don't know. Uh, but Narnia, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Well, the couple next to me came in because uh, they didn't want to see something else and they hadn't heard of this. And then the dude looked up the poster on his on his smartphone, and the girl goes, "Is that animated? That looks like an alien. This is about aliens." <laughs> to them. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, so, yeah, so who knows what the mask is. <laughs> I don't know what to think of this. Uh, but Kelly Wand, now... Sounds uh, incomprehensible. Well, let's find out. Kelly Wand, could you explain to us what happens in this movie? Oh, you mean a beast of the southern wipes <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah, rock and roll. How much are you dreading this, Tom? 
I don't know what to make of this. Uh, I'm not dreading it at all. I, uh, I'm, I'm very curious what you're going to do with this. Uh, when you love I, the movie, you always this, you get worried about the opposite. I've noticed. Not true. No? Uh, not true. It's just I know that when we see a crappy movie, the opposite is a, is it's going to be my favorite part of the movie. Um, yeah, but before Margaret, you were like, oh, I don't know. And oh then, yeah, the Margaret one was a tough sell. No, you liked it. I thought afterwards. Right, you set doubts before. Well, Kelly One, let's see if you can yeah. be over <laughs> with your Beast of the Southern Wipes. All right, Beast of Southern Wipes is a black widower <laughs> lives on what he calls the bathtub. <laughs> oh, God. That's how we start. <laughs> uh, I have to pretend Bruce isn't here. We may not be able to get through it. A black widower lives on what he calls the bathtub with his daughter. He misses her dead mom so much that he named their daughter Hush Puppy. Talk about cornball. For most of the movie, I assume that the bathtub was his name for what they called their raft, even though it's made out of rusty scrap metal and time machine rotors. But later, somebody says it's the name of the lake or something. If you think about it, the Earth's a giant bathtub. That's why it takes forever to drain. I guess the mom died during Hurricane Katrina, although the dad says that when alive, at least, she was so hot that whenever she walked past pans of water, they'd boil. So maybe she caused Katrina, too. Dad's retcon version of this to Hush Puppy is, God wandered, so she flew off into the sky to boil the water for his chicken noodle soup of the souls. Wouldn't it make more sense if we told kids that angels brought them here and storks carried them away? When I'm dead, I'd rather be carried by a stork. If I was a baby, I think its beak would freak me out. Dad has what Bruce Garrick would likely call blood issues if he was upselling a patient or threatening me with a fist fight. But he, the dad, not Bruce, is also a badass at catching fish by waiting for them to swim into his hands. Haha, ha, the parents of the fish aren't crafty swimming instructors. Instead of teaching Hush Puppy this useful skill, though, Dad teaches her how to beat the fish that's gasping out its last agonized breaths in the bottom of the boat to death with her bare hands. Unfortunately, it's a catfish, and Hush Puppy cuts her hand open from slapping its whiskers. The dad's all, don't worry about dat none. Y'all just keep hitting it till one of you's dead. Or just use an oar and bleed less, I'm thinking. But I guess that's why my genes won't be passed on. A yen for heat turns out not to skip a generation. Hush Puppy's frying up some cat food and car battery chowder one night when she gets distracted by the sight of her dad wearing a hospital gown and accidentally blows up her house. Then on those dates, she and her dad live in separate houses, so I guess he had arson suspicions of his own. Dad chases her down and starts laying some shit on her about responsibility and carefully listening to what your elders say, blah, blah. But she wisely silences him by declaring she'll eat birthday cake when he dies and follows it up with a punch to the chest that knocks him to his knees and ushers in a thunderstorm that kills half the town. Sidebar. Nobody serves cake at funerals because if you make yum-yum sounds, everybody will think you murdered the deceased. The dad takes on the thunderstorm with a shotgun, blasting away at the clouds and shouting, Ha! That all you got? I'm still here. Since his gun sharks aren't coming anywhere near the clouds, and it's shooting him back with water instead of bullets, seems like a draw to me. Whenever dad's not educating her on the ways of the world, 
The slack's picked up by this chick who talks kind of like Jack Hay, but looks like that psychic chick from Jeepers Creepers who never did anything. She teaches Holmec to the bathtub tatterdemalions in a cabin full of live crawfish. She's all, we're made of meat, all of us. One time, some prehistoric beasts called auroxes ate all the kids of the cavemen, so our species died out and we don't exist right now. This page from history makes an impression on Hush Puppy, and she fantasizes for the rest of the movie about giant CG auroxes. Even though the meat chick didn't show her picture what they look like, and she was surrounded by 10 million live crawfish at the time, the kid imagines them correctly as having fur and tasting like the rich man's wildebeest. Hush Puppy's a real spitfire. Only one night after blowing up her house and punching a heart attack into her dad's chest, she waits till he's sleeping and then puts the unpotted plant from a racer head on his face. When he rouses suffocating and asks her what she had in mind, she gets mad and throws some spare aluminum siding at their aluminum siding outgoing stack. He's all, I can throw shit too, and throws stuff I guess they don't need into stuff they don't want. Then the dad passes out again. Another time, she's at crawfish class again, only this time it's night and in a bar, and the whole town's there, including her dad. But everybody's drunk and bored, just like at real school. The meat lady's all, here's how y'all do this, and then cracks a crawfish shell open, and then shrugs, and throws it all into the recycling bin. Hush puppy's all, you mean like this, and then doesn't do anything. Then the dad's all, nah, hush puppy, napster it, like this. He picks up a crawfish, bites it in half, pours salt on his thumb, throws the crawfish over his shoulder, sucks the lime off Lisa Bonet, farts tequila, and slams his shot glass down. The kid's all, I'm the man, and stumbles headfirst into the crawfish tank. A grandpa hillbilly in a rocking chair stands up and starts doing a slow clap. <sighs> Maybe you're right, Tom. The characters <laughs> float around. <laughs> I mean, it's almost over. I mean... Here we go. The characters float around and hang out, and vice versa. At one point, they dynamite a billboard or a dam, then all argue silently while music plays about whether it was the right one. Some cops from FEMA come and arrest them at home for surviving. They're taken to a hospital. Where a doctor comes up to the dad and goes, Good news, Mr. Hu Mr. Puppy Sr. You have a terminal illness. I meant bad news, by the way. The dad's all, Don't say words like that in front of my kid, motherfucker. They go over to a hallway and stand by a PA microphone, and the doctor's stage whispers deafeningly over every speaker in the hospital. Also, due to a clipboard malfunction, we removed your one working kidney and transposed your left foot with your penis. That'll be a million dollars. Payable to me, Bruce Garrick. <laughs> That's right, right. That's not based on fact. The school bus doctors put Hush Puppy on a school bus to the nearest crumbling glacier. Dad, they put back in a hospital gown to wander around the meadow of the nearby heartstrings. Luckily, Hush Puppy gets adopted by another food chick who's kind of like that stripper in color of purple and says shit like, mm-hmm. Hush Puppy buys a ticket for a ferry ride to her dad's house. Along the way, the captain eats a chicken sandwich and throws the wrapper on the floor of the cabin along with 5,000 other ones. I've had one of these a day for 5,001 days now, and each one of these rappers tells a story. Granted, the same story from a digestive perspective, but someday I hope to interest a publisher into paying me millions for the complete set. To sweeten the honeypot, I also save the roughage. Hush Puppy tells him she hopes to someday be more cohesive than his roughage. She docks at her dad's island and goes inside, and he's lying there looking into the movie dyingly. 
She feeds him some chicken McNuggets while he cries and goes, no crying now. Then she and the other townspeople triumphantly walk on water and back across the Bering Strait to dump the dad's ashes into Michael Brown's espresso maker. <laughs> the end. <laughs> you know what? Right. What's the last opsis for 2012? <laughs> Are we done with him now? Yeah. Kelly one, that was a tough one. I don't know what you're going to do with it. Uh, I, I, thought, I, I thought you did a heck of a job. Oh God! Yeah, uh, too soon. All right, so Bruce Garrick, you saw this first. Get in here first. How did this movie? How well did this movie work for you? You uh, you don't get to as many movies as we do, and I know that probably nothing will top the Avengers for you for at least five or six years. Uh, That's like six movies in one. <laughs> uh, but Bruce Garrick, how did you, uh, a, a guy who doesn't see as many movies but is certainly discriminating about them, uh, how did Beast of the Southern Wild work for you? Uh, it it didn't end up working that well um, because um, I just I thought there was a kind of a disconnect between that. First of all, there was so much about this movie that was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the uh, the setting was great. The, the most of the people that were in this film, as far as I know, were you know first time actors. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography was just delicious. Um, the music, people have complained about the music as being overbearing, but the first thing I did after uh, seeing the movie was basically uh, find the uh, the music, find the soundtrack on iTunes. Um, I love the music. It was just unbelievable. I listened to it all the time. Um, it was just, it just kind of became so sentimental and mawkish uh, okay. at, at times that I just it couldn't, I just couldn't take it. Uh, and uh, I think it's really a shame because um, I, I, I feel like it, it almost turned into a parody of itself, and it, and it and it shouldn't have been. And I don't think it meant to. I just think that's where it went. And I think that I haven't. I don't make a point of um, uh, reading a whole bunch of criticism, uh, but when I did go back and look at some of the people that uh, reviewed the film negatively, um, especially in the Village Voice. Uh, Kind of the the sentimentality of the, of the movie was a, was a big strike against it, and a lot of the times that's what uh, that and the, the kind of the, the ham handed story, uh, which I think it, that in kind of goes hand in hand with the sen- uh, sentimentalism complaint. Okay, well hold that thought. Let's go around the room a little bit. Uh, Kelly Wan, you I would think would tend to be pretty sensitive to like like any sort of mawkishness in movies. You don't seem like you broke that kind of thing. Uh, how well did Beasts of the Southern Wilds work for you? Uh. I think Bruce is right, but I still like the movie, and I would recommend seeing it. I really like the dad a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, it had a great sense of place, and it wasn't like anything I'd seen in a while. Okay. So, but yeah, I mean, but it's hard not to be sentimental in that kind of... I mean, because you're... The whole deck's rigged, because you have the dying dad and the... Like, is there an unsentimental way to tell that story, or do you just tell it about the other characters? I have like a theory... The other, oh. Go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead, I'm done. Well, I do have a theory on, on that, and I, I kind of agree that it's sentimental. I, I, mockish is a sort of loaded way to put it, but I do want to address that in a second. Uh, but to finish sort of getting the room's temperature, uh, Dingus, why don't you go next? How well did this work for you? Oh, it worked spectacularly for me. I, I, I loved it uh, just about without reservation. Um, I, you know, I'm actually kind of curious. I, we haven't gotten to you yet, Tom, but... Um, I only know two other people besides you guys who haven't who have seen this. It didn't work for them either. 
So I'm curious if Bruce is willing to share whether the person he went with liked it. Oh, okay. yeah, absolutely. But we, but that doesn't get Tom off the hook yet, does it? <laughs> no. So I'm, no. I'm with Dingus in that uh, pretty much <laughs> without reservation. I, I'm not even sure. I, I was absolutely swept away by this. I mean, it, it is, it was so. Is transportive a word? I mean, I mean, I, when I go to movies, yeah. I when yeah. I transportative. Transportative. I don't like that many syllables. I'm just going to yeah. go with transportive. Uh, I'll go with that too. When I, when I go to a movie, I just the the moment where, and especially when I don't know that much about it, which was the case here, uh, the moment that the movie starts. And I'm just, you know, if I'm not thinking about real life and if I can get through the entire movie without thinking about any of my day-to-day problems or, or whatever, uh, I, for the most part, a movie can be a success. When I start getting bored and looking at the news crawls, the different headlines, or noticing actors' hairstyles or whatnot, uh, then a movie's starting to fail. There was not a single moment where I sort of fell out of this movie. Uh, mm. I was just head over heels, just completely in love with it, with what it was doing. I do kind of agree that it was sentimental, but I, I, I kind of like Kelly Wanda. Was, was saying, I don't think you can get around that. And I, I think, I, I do want to talk about that in a second. But just without reservation, I adored this thing. And a lot of what I adored about it, too, because I do see so many movies, um, I so respect when a movie does something differently. And the way I put it to, to Dingus and Kelly Wand when I told them that we should see this and do a podcast on it, is that I feel you cannot talk about Beasts of the Southern Wild without putting together words that you don't normally put together when you describe a movie. If I was to say to someone, Beast of the Southern Wild is, and then I fill in that blank to tell them a little bit about it, I'm going to have to use words that haven't been thrown together to describe a movie as far as I can think of. I mean, I can see ingredients of other movies. I can sort of see the influences that the young people who made this movie have, have drawn from. I can see uh, you know, what events have informed them. But as far as describing it as a whole, this is just it's a completely new piece of work, I feel. And, and that gets so much credit from me because so many movies, I feel, are just kind of derivative or working with formulas, even when they're effective. Uh, this, to me, just felt completely new, completely refreshing, and transportive. Um, mm. So there we go. So I, I think we have uh, two of us who are, are going to be huge champions, and, and then uh, Kelly Wand and Bruce Garrett are going to be wet blankets. Nice work, guys. <laughs> yeah. Glad to help. But I'm more on the fence than Bruce. Well, I don't know, but- I don't know about I, that. I'm not on the. Fa- I mean, there are a lot of parts of this w- movie that worked. I just, I just was so disappointed at the end. I was so disappointed. Yeah, I didn't feel that disappointed. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let's talk about that because I think you're right, Bruce, and that certainly there's a lot of sentimentality here. Uh, uh, but here's what I would suggest. Um, yes. Okay. Because the movie is about. Uh, it's told from the perspective of a child. I mean, the movie mm-hmm. is all about capturing this childlike wonder. Uh, right. And specifically about her learning about and coming to terms with death. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it, without being a movie, you know, there are plenty of movies that are told from the perspective of children, and you can clearly see this adult cynicism creeping into the movie over the course mm-hmm. of it. Uh, you know, there's a great Terry Gilliam movie called Tideland, which this reminded me of, which was about, you know, the perspective of a, a young girl dealing with her father's dead, and it has this sort mm-hmm. of flight of fancy to it. But you could clearly see this adult cynicism in it. Um, okay. I, I think that for what they were trying to do, as far as like not letting that adult cynicism creep into the movie, there's no way it could avoid that sort of sentimentality. Um, it, it, for, for me, that was just part and parcel of the perspective of this little six-year-old kid who 
you know, she, she doesn't know what to make of the world, and it's revealing itself to her, and it's all kind of fine. Uh, so I, I don't know that there's any way around that. Like, and I think if they were to try to work around it, it would become more of an adult perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's I think it's a very reasonable, um, uh, very reasonable defense. I just think that uh, um, I mean. Aside from that, I think part of the way that the story is told. So, I mean, it's 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 really pretty heavy-handed. Um, the way that they put there's so many good scenes in this movie, and like one, I think my favorite scene of the whole movie um, is when uh, the father they're in the in the storm, mm-hmm. and he wants to show uh, Hush Puppy that uh, he. Uh, I'm sorry, I can spoil this, right? Yes, now we yeah, are. Yeah, yeah all okay, yeah, we're spoilers. Okay. Kelly Wan gave away even the ending already. So, yes, yeah. exactly. So, wait, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, on request. The, yeah, right, uh, right. Michael Brown was involved. Right, exactly. It's his fault. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I think the uh, one of the greatest scenes in the whole movie is the uh, the the father in the storm, and he's got that like the. Basically, a mining helmet, like a hard hat with a with a you know a, a headlamp, and then a gun, and he just walks out of their completely inadequate shelter and uh, just starts shooting at the storm and swearing at it. I, that was that was fantastic. I loved that. Um, that was really a high point. Um, that was but, almost uh, this like a Bayou version of King Lear, almost. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yes, that's a, that's a good point. Um, but uh, but it it also had. So many things that I just couldn't. The uh, um, the the refugee camp type scene mm-hmm. uh, where the you know they're all chasing, they're all kind of like the inmates are escaping the asylum to the bus. I mean, it's so. It, it I felt like there's there's just no way to um, to stay in the movie and and accept scenes like that. Um, at least for me, maybe it's because I can't watch a, uh, a child perspective. Um, I just that things like that, and uh, the uh, the and, and also the way that the, the that the um, the way that the scenes kind of put together. The uh, the doctor that where the the sort of cartoonishly the guy cartoonishly grabs the guy and just kind of pushes him into the into the wall. Um, I, I'm not sure why it had to be like that. Um, and uh, and I'm and of course, as you all know, um, I hate happy endings. So uh, <laughs> that's not a happy ending. That really, uh, if, it, if the my, I was hoping that the uh, Aurochs would like bite the kid's head off. That would have been my <laughs> ideal movie. And uh, well, it didn't happen, I was going to so. ask you if you thought that this movie should have ended ten minutes earlier. Um, you mean before all the Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, magical realism kind of stuff happened? That happens early on, though. I mean, I think it's throughout pretty consistent with the magical realism. It, it gets. I think it gets really. I think it gets a, a little more. They, they, they turn it up to eleven at the end. But. I just wanted to, to clarify for folks listening. Uh, Bruce has asserted before, and we we uh, use this when we're talking to each other as kind of an inside joke. But Bruce has asserted before that pretty much every movie should end ten minutes before it actually moves. Ends. I mean, and and it's a it's a point well taken. Basically, that that. Hollywood and a lot of movies in general just feel the need to drag things out and state the obvious for people, for the slower people in the cheap seats. So we have this thing that pretty much every movie should end ten minutes before it actually what ends. What about Return of the King? <laughs> well, that's being true to the books, and I'm sure nobody uh, would take issue with, you know, faithfulness that doesn't count to for documentaries. <laughs> Thank you, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and so 
Bruce, would you feel that like, like that's kind of an objection? I'm, I'm assuming to more like studio kind of Hollywoodish movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea that things should end ten minutes earlier. Did you feel that that was the case here? No, I don't. I think the movie okay. was put was well put together in, in that sense. I mean, I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it. I mean, it, to the sense that it hit everybody over the head in the audience with the uh, the story throughout. I don't think it needed to stop ten minutes earlier. I think it, uh, you know, kind of wrapped up. I think it was I think it was coherent and it was uh, um, and it was um, uh, it wasn't there were no ex- extraneous parts in in, in sense of, in the sense of the structure. I just think that uh, there were certain components. The also the uh, that that uh, scene where um, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but she's the uh, sort of the uh, the shamaness who the school uh, teacher, the woman yeah. who's the teacher with the tattoos yeah. of the aurochs right. on her leg, right? Miss Beth, yeah. Bathsheba. Yes, she's wise. <laughs> Yeah, so she uh, she's on in the uh, you know in the, in the boat. Can you just come speeding in and takes the and knocks the thing out of his uh, out of his hand or the the uh, you know traps him with the whatever rope, um, you know stuff like that. Just uh, so painful, uh, and I, I don't know that that really had to happen, but uh, it, it's it's too bad because it, it really did. It had a, I can't remember who said that it had a wonderful sense of place. Uh, whether it was you or, or, or Dingus, but uh, that's a that's a perfect uh, that's very uh, that's spot me, on. Anyway, oh, <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> I, sort of, I sort of assumed no, that it's it would. Fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so uh... <laughs> I don't agree with you, by the way, anymore. I agree with Tom and Dingus. Okay, good. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's talk about this sense of place because um, I I don't I, I, one of the things that I loved about it is that it was not Bruce I. I I, under, I wonder if some of your objections, or, or some of uh, a person's objections might be, and when you call it ham-handed or heavy-handed, uh, I don't think this is about Katrina. Like, this is not specifically Louisiana. Oh, there's I agree. Some, they, Yeah, they, I, they, they take the license plates off of cars. I think there's one place where you can actually see one. But for the most part, nobody ever says Katrina. This is no. not, I don't even think it says FEMA, is it? Like, this is not the real world. Right. Uh, uh, and yeah, I, and that's I, important. And they get. A, I think you can get a lot of leeway when you're when you're not in the real world, when you're being told from the perspective of a child. Uh, I, I think they have a. For, for me, they get more of a pass to do crazy things like the scene where they're going to blow up the dam, uh, like some of the the magical realism just sort of wafting in and out of the movie at will. Um, I mean, the, even the ham-handedness of the doctor. We you know the doctor is this this weird other authoritarian establishment figure who's right. you know the, the the evils of civilization. And and you know we all appreciate the fact that medicine keeps us free from things like tuberculosis and stuff. And we don't you know we're we're not naive about that. And so the the movie can take these sort of flights of fantasy and convenience and contrivance. And because it's not a real world place, and because it's a child perspective child's perspective i kind of feel like those, those things at least didn't bother me for, for those jarring reasons. i think okay fair enough uh no i didn't like i i i just felt very much like i was watching a fairy tale mm-hmm. uh so that some like if i'd been watching a movie in the real world they would have been more jarring but i just kind of felt because it felt more like a fairy tale because it was so unclear about where the line is between reality for instance i'm not even sure that the the stuff in the last half of the movie literally happens uh, well does she well, really I'm, get in a boat and sail away and find this this woman in this this crazy sort of cajun strip club, exotic nightclub place yeah, like that's no no that's a movie. that's a trip to the afterlife i mean that i totally agree with what tom's saying in fact at one point i started to wonder is this do we really take this as a real father or as a child's construction of a father 
And that, that trip in the boat is, is a hero's journey to the afterlife. Right. I mean, the place is called Legion Fields. Right. So, right. So that, that's why then the mm. fact that the doctor is kind of a clown, a caricature, that doesn't bother me. That's how this child sees a doctor, sees a refugee camp. No, um, I understand that. Yeah. It's, so, it's, but, it, but that's the problem, right? I mean, you're trying to translate uh, a child's per- perception to an adult film, and it just okay. doesn't. I, it, I'm not a you know I'm not a director, so I can't think of a solution to that problem. All I know is that it didn't. It, whatever happened took me out of the film. Sure. And also got me a little annoyed. Now there, there are a lot of other. I mean, and and your your point about the, it not being a real place, I think is is very important because I've, I've also seen criticisms of this movie about uh, that that have to do with uh, it not being politically uh, pointed enough, which I think mm-hmm. completely misses the point of the film. And you know, this is not meant to be a polemic. And to the to the extent that it ever becomes a polemic, I mean, I think that kind of takes it off the rails as well. But it does a good job of not really doing that. Right. Um, you know, some of the, the characters are, uh, you know, the, the, the old guy who, uh, you know, just walks through the door and, uh, you know, he's drunk and he just falls flat and he's like into the into the water. Um, I mean, a lot of that stuff is, is just completely, you know, comical. Uh, and once again, I mean, you, yes, you can say this is something that's done from a, you know, as a, a children's, uh, you know, from a from a child's perspective, you know, things are kind of buffoonish. Um, but when you're watching it, the, there there are enough parts of the movie that are not that way that uh, it, it, it's a little bit uh, the, the the transitions are a little unsettling. Were unsettling to me. But you know, I don't I don't necessarily think it's any more buffoonish than the Odyssey. Um, and while I agree that it's it's a fairy tale or that that with the idea that it's a fantasy drama, I think that it's also striving for universal elements, and I think it succeeds in a lot of those ways. And that's why I love it so much. I love the things that she's talking about, about the universe, and that we just accept, or at least I just accept, that these words are coming out of her brain, this stuff about the universe being broken or, or uh, one, you know, the universe relies on one piece not being broken or you can break something or you can break something too badly. Sometimes it felt like this movie was talking to God. Sometimes it felt like it was talking from the perspective of God. And so I, I think that I'm, I really appreciate what you just said, Bruce, because you, you made a correction instead of saying, I think, childish to saying a child's point of view which I think is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it, you know, the whole, all of her dialogue, too, does seem at parts very stylized. I mean, there's this very preternatural wisdom about this little six-year-old kid that, again, I don't think is necessarily realistic. I mean, her insights and the way it's expressed, it, it's poetry, uh, and not just cinematic poetry, but, but some of her language is just incredibly poetic. Uh, and I, I was very aware that I was... I was watching something, you know, written by someone else, that it was finely crafted, that it was really tuned with a sense for poetry. Uh, so, And again, that's just part of a fairy tale. I mean, it, it was a modern fairy tale told through cinematic language uh, with this incredibly expressive uh, actress, too, which which absolutely helped. I mean, that little girl was was such an amazing 
find. And I think of a movie, there's a Tarsum Singh movie called The Fall, and they use a little tiny, I think she was like four years old when they shot, uh, a little Romanian girl who wasn't an actress. They just brought out this, this little tiny girl, and they basically tricked her, and they shot the movie around her and captured these genuine expressions. So they just had the advantage of an authentic child at the center of their movie. But this seemed very different. I mean, this seemed like this little six-year-old girl was just expressing complex emotions, and she was certainly doing the voiceover. I mean, it was an amazing thing to watch, and it just lent to the fairy tale feel of the thing. I mean, just when you're just writing a story, yeah, you can write a child like that, but the fact that they got this little tiny actress to be so expressive, and the, just those big old eyes and what seemed to be going on in her face, and some of the emotional scenes were kind of hard to take, too. That, just, that, that was such an amazing part of the experience, too, is that little girl. Yeah, um, they could. They, they couldn't have carried that film without her. I mean, if exactly. you had an av- an average, you know, sort of child uh, actress, I think the movie would have fallen completely, uh, fallen apart. You know, it just at, at, under the weight of, of significant ambition, and uh, the fact that she was able to do that, I, I, I thought was amazing. Yeah, and and working so closely with the fellow playing her father. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, just 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 some amazing performances there. Um, I think I read somewhere that she was. It was like a two-year shoot or something. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, two, it was a two-year process. Yeah. Oh, okay. A oh, two-year shoot. Holy cow! She that she would have grown quite a bit. But even six months at that age. Yeah, that's true. It's like three feet, right? Dingus, exactly. what do we what do we know? <laughs> uh, what do we know, Dingus, about the process? So this is all shot down in Louisiana, right? Uh, a lot of local talent. Yeah, and and Ben's Island was working on developing it for quite a while and and working on casting while they lived and worked down there. Um, And uh, they they were actually, their production office was across the street from uh, Dwight Henry's, uh, Dwight Henry's the father, across from the bakery he owned. And so they would go in his bakery and hang out, and he was this guy who was running the bakery. So he's a baker slash actor? Yeah, he, he runs a restaurant, and he eventually had to move locations. His, his restaurant was destroyed in Katrina, and uh, he would come in and, and tell them stories, and Ben Zeitlin would watch the story that he told about breaking through the roof of his house to get out and, and his bakery being destroyed, and, and wa- you know watching that as he wrote, and then he realized, oh, that's the guy. And so they convinced him to be in it. Well before that, they had seen something like 3,500 little girls and and this little girl, Vengene, uh was five at the time, five years old when they did casting call, and they were looking for girls six to eight, and and she went in anyway, and they mistook who she was because her nickname is Nazy, and when they called her, they said we're looking for Nazy, and the mother said you mean Vengene, and they said no no, and they almost hung up on her, so it was sort of this this story of we're going to sneak into the audition anyway, and. She came in and she just had the right spirit because she's supposed to be this fearless girl who is just always about doing what's right. And then they brought the guy to play the father in, and she had already rejected two other fathers. Um, They basically begged him to come in, and he brought some of his baking goods in, and she approved him, and there you go. Ah, that's that's how he got it. He baked her some cookies. Well, the 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 whole the whole production company really really wanted him. They just thought he's perfect for this, and he said, "I've I've got a business to run. I can't." And so they eventually they eventually convinced him to do it, and they still had to get her approval. But but this and there were still several several weeks or months to go before they actually shot. So they they were down there for a long time developing it. Again, it came from a 
loosely based on this one act play by Lucy Alibar. Um, and, and he, and Ben Zeitlin wrote the, wrote the script with Lucy Alibar as they went through this whole process. And it was, it was years long, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a two year shoot, but it did take years to, to come about. And Dingus, what, or anyone, what do we know about the source material? This is originally a play. Yes. Yeah, it's a it's a one act play called Juicy and Delicious, and um, I haven't read the play, but uh, from what I've read about the process, it's sort of loosely based on that one act play. And the woman who wrote the one act play wrote the screenplay with Ben Zeitlin. Because uh, the title is from I didn't realize this just googling it. The title is actually the name of a short story that has nothing to do with the play or the movie, uh, which is a little confusing. There's a Wait, stress- what? Yeah, there's a short story from the 70s, uh, Doris Betts, I, I think, uh, that, that's about, I think, an interracial relationship. Uh, that has nothing oh, to God. Do. <laughs> yeah, and it has nothing to do with the movie. Uh, but it's a great title. Though. That's what's weird. Yeah. It does fit. Well, the short story title is from a Blake poem. Uh, you, you know, there is something about, you know, the, a, a child from the southern wilds and how that's where the beasts live. And that's where, you know, the, the people are because they're closer to God, they're black and white people are further. I mean, there's this this sort of uh, it, it is a Blake poem predating, you know, from a time when we thought blacks were not human or different. There were three fifths, according to the founding fathers. Yeah. This is before the civil rights movement. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. Thank you. It's a much more graceful way to say what I was trying to say. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the title, whatever, whatever it's, you know, it's gone through various incarnations, come from different things. Uh, it's a play with a completely different name. By the way, if the movie had been called Juicy and Delicious, I think I would have been expecting something very different. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't know what to make of that, uh, but it is it is such an amazing title, and and also I have to say, sitting down to watch this, I, I think there is more energy in the first five minutes of this movie than anything than, than all the movies I've seen together all summer. Like even as much as I loved the Avenger and all the celebrity wattage that it has, and the amazing CG, and just the lengths they go to with the licensing and all those characters. You know, just the first five minutes of what's going on with Beasts of the Southern Wild, there's just, it, it was just so energetic and just so much just stuff spilling out of the screen and just pacing and just energy is the best way I know how to explain it. Uh, good Lord, what a great bit of work. Just what a great opening. Yeah, um, the opening was the best part of the movie. That's the problem. Now, see, Bruce, you say that because I, I want to, I, I, you really think, it, so you would say it kind of fell apart and got sentimental. Like, that's your it objection really overall. really just went off the rails for me. And the interesting thing is that um, I really, I loved the, there were so many devices in the film that worked for me. I loved the, the Aurochs and mm-hmm. the sort of their, this inexorable march that they had. They were kind of going, they, they were, they were shot in different, uh, in, in different uh, sort of backdrops. There was the, the uh, part where they sort of fell upon each other and, uh, uh, you know, killed the weak. And then there was another one where they were kind of going down this canal and they were just, they were kind of marching. Um, it was, uh, you know, every fairy tale, I think, has to have some sense of foreboding, right? Yep. There's the mm, there's yeah. the, uh, uh, the sort of lighthearted part and there's the danger. And I thought it, the Aurochs really did a great, the, the danger of the Aurochs, this kind of oncoming, de- and, and uh, which I assume... Uh, was the uh, you know the impending death of the father or the sort of the changing of the world or whatever you want to call it or however you want to interpret that uh, was really well done and I I love the music that that they used for it um, and, uh, and now real then, quick before we get to your butt because I want to hear about your butt uh, yes. 
Those are ox, by the way, and, and you're so right. Like it's it's almost like the way that a really canny monster movie will unveil its monster. You know, mm-hmm. like you'll see a little piece of it at a time, or it'll introduce a new behavior. It was almost like you know you see him first frozen in the ice, and then you see the ice collapsing, and then you start to see little bits and pieces of them, and then you yeah. see that fantastic scene where they're like it's like something from a Terry Gilliam movie with the miniatures <laughs> where they're rampaging through the village, mm-hmm. and then you see him full on. I want to say if you want to preserve that amazing cinematic sensibility the Aurochs have, do not watch the little making of featurette, which you can see on YouTube, where mm. it actually shows the little pigs. Because they're little tiny pigs. They're adorable little pigs that they use. They weren't <laughs> oh, big no. old boars. And they actually, they needed to get the little pigs comfortable with the fake horns and stuff, so they would gradually put their clothes on them and play with them and leave the little pig. But watching these adorable little pigs yeah. just running around at full speed, because they slow the film down to make them look bigger, uh, they just look way too cute. When you see that featurette, it'll destroy any sense of foreboding <laughs> that you get in the movie. Uh, so, all right, so Bruce, that you, you liked how that unveiled and now get wait get wait here. yep yep before you go into that i want to add to what you just said because the the other thing you see is them on that tattoo on miss beth chiba's leg yes and and there's this cave drawing aspect that goes throughout this movie yeah. thanks to the things that um that uh hush puppy is doing and i love that that's another way that they're introduced as this sort of uh skin cave drawing and, and so anyway she, go ahead does she draw them on the cardboard yeah. Like, do we know that they're in her imagination through the picture she draws in the cardboard when when she's burned the house? I don't think so. I think okay. she's mainly drawing herself because she's preserving her history for science scientists in the future. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the, the cave drawing, uh, just the, the fact that it, this is sort of a more primal form of storytelling. You know, she doesn't mm-hmm. have TV and radio. Like, like I love how it touched on that. The oral tradition yeah. to the drawings. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Tom the 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 uh, the sort of the the glacier the ice uh, I mean that was a that was the way that that idea was introduced I thought was was spectacular yeah yeah uh, okay and then get to your butt but yeah then you just have this kind of you know um, you know Peter O'Toole my favorite year kind of like uh, slapstick kind of I tried to get all movie nerd on us nice try which part <laughs> the dynamite <laughs> home alone part <laughs> <laughs> no, where they're kind of like you know they're 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 uh, running out of that uh, that little camp and they're all you know one guy is and I can't even remember you know he's got the crutches and the the and they they kind of con- he, uh, hush puppy confronts her dad in the parking lot and it's like come on you, you, there's got to be a better way to do parking that. lot confrontation yeah. <laughs> And and it and it really I mean I felt like well, where's my you know where's my horrible monsters? Well, uh, hey, here so so even the uh, the scene where she finally confronts them because that's where I think it all comes to a head and that's I think where the movie is making its point, yeah. which is again. Uh, it, it's 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 free of cynicism. I mean, I don't necessarily share the world view of this movie, but I can respect it, and uh, I, I think calling it sentimental or, or mawkish is more of value judgment than subjective. Uh, well it is subjective so here's here's what i kind of want to get at like it, it comes to a head you see these monsters revealed and like bruce is saying you know in a fairy tale you expect the the big bad witch is going to emerge and there's going to be some kind of showdown and there's going to be some sort of more moral moral of the story uh 
we get one here when she finally comes face to face with these Aurochs, and they're revealed as these really, you know, they look kind of cute, even though they're big. You re- you see, oh, they're just kind of these big beasts, and she kind of faces them down. Yes. And she says to them, if I, as near as I could tell the dialogue, she says to them, "You're my friends, and now I'm going to go hang out with my dad." Like that's kind of the. That is the climax of the story, is these beasts break free from ice, and they rampage across the world to come face-to-face with her so she can say to them, you're my friend, I'm going to go hang out with my dad before he dies. Mm-hmm. So that to me, now, now on one hand you could say that's sentimental, but I sort of feel like that's the, the overall point of the movie is that you know the, the this movie's worldview is that the universe is a big elaborate machine where all the pieces have to to work in harmony uh and that the cynical view of that is to say that is to look at the universe and and say it's all about you know life is all about staving off chaos and it's it's all death and predation in the end and you know, you know it, it's terrible and we wrestle with our insignificance like that's one side to express what this movie is saying in a different way which is namely that it's a Literally, I think the line in the universe is, you are a little piece of a big, big universe. Mm-hmm. You can make that observation that it's all chaos, that you don't kind of matter that much. You can make it in a non-negative way. You know, everything will eventually die. You can make that in a non-negative way by observing, as she does, this cycle of life and how, how life and death are all interrelated and all this stuff that is often expressed in these clumsy kind of hippie ways. Uh, like here, it's expressed as, yes, I'm a little piece in a big, big universe. And yes, death is always charging towards me, but that doesn't have to be a terrible thing. These oh. things can be my my friend. Uh, so, so I feel like it's I, I kind of share this worldview that yes, it's a big universe and and it's there's insignificant and it's chaos and death and those are all terrible things. But you know, she has this sort of childlike wonder towards it and kind of embraces it and accepts it. It's not yeah. this sense of resignation. So I kind of feel like that sentimentality is the point of the movie. And I wouldn't characterize it as sentimentality so much as I would characterize it as childlike acceptance. Well, here's here's the thing, Tom, and I, okay. I, 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 I see that point. Now, this is, on one hand, I think that just because a point is a little... Um, a movie can make a point that is trite or sentimental, and that may be the point that the movie's making, but you have mm-hmm. to evaluate the you know the sort of philosophical stance for what it is. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that that's the case, but this whole cycle of life um, got me thinking about one of your favorite movies, uh, which is The Fountain. Mm-hmm. And I just thought about how similar... The uh, the sort of overarching point of the two Absolutely. movies were yes or was, but the thing is that in the fountain the there's a um, there's a tension between what I think the the sort of philosophical point is and the protagonist's inability to accept that point, mm-hmm. and in the um, in Beasts of the Southern Wild the the point the 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 point the protagonists. Acceptance of the point is the movie and is the point of the movie and is, you know, sort of everything's in a philosophical harmony. So it almost, it comes across as this, um, this, it's almost didactic, uh, which I don't like. I mean, the, the, the fact that you sort of take away that any kind of tension of, 
at the end of the movie. I mean, I, I, I saw the whole thing coming, right? I mean, anybody that was watching saw saw these. I mean, the, the, the monsters aren't going to eat her. I mean, the, that would kind of subvert the whole point of the... <laughs> well, the monsters the, aren't... Right, but the monsters aren't everything you wanted. They're, they're, they're not, I'm, say again? That's what I wanted, yeah. But that, would, yeah, I, I was, I was so hoping, but it, that didn't happen. I, that, that was, that would have been the uh, requiem for a dream uh, alternate ending for this. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if Hugh Selby Jr. had done the script, they would have yeah, definitely yeah. just bit off her head. Uh, yeah. But, but I mean that, yeah. I uh, the the fountain is such a good comparison, but I, I think again that that it's it's the difference between this is the same point one is from the perspective of a grief-stricken adult and the other is from the perspective of a child trying to understand the universe uh and naturally the child and that's why i say part of the beauty of the movie is it has no adult cynicism you you know uh, a fountain is all about reconciling that adult cynicism with the cycle of life and the inevitability of death and all of that this is this is that free of adult cynicism and and you don't see that in many movies because movies are made by adults right Uh, but i also would would disagree with you maybe you guys need to do one on the fountain but uh the fountain is not about i would very respectfully disagree it's not about adult cynicism it's about the inability to accept someone's powerlessness i think it's actually very idealistic uh um perspective that uh, Hugh Jackman has is that he can change the world. It's just like in The Sacrifice, uh, where you actually can, a single person's uh, actions can make uh, this change in the, the outcome of history. Uh, and in, in The Fountain, they can't. I mean, he's powerless. And right. I don't think it's so much cynicism, oh. it's just powerlessness. Well, but I, I, love, I love that point, Bruce, because if you look at the two differences in how the main characters try to fix their universe or fix the thing that is broken about the universe. Mm-hmm. And she even directly addresses that point. She says, you know, a, a kid can, can only fix things in a certain way, and then she dumps the medicine in her father's mouth. I mean, look at that directly uh, against what happens with Hugh Jackman's character as he's trying to fix what's wrong with his wife. Mm-hmm. In, in, a, in a very uh, futile way, uh, but I think without cynicism. So... I don't know. It's a. It's a. It, it, I, I definitely. I think you guys are definitely on to something, and, and I, I agree with your point that uh, if you're going to present something from the perspective of a child, you have to. There's certain. There's certain license, and you have to be able to go and see the movie and accept that. I'm not the kind of guy that's able to accept that. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just my perspective on film, um, and maybe it's you know, maybe it's my loss, um, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say other than when it, when it comes to when it when you get to those kind of uh, uh, to those scenes, I, I have to feel like there's you know this is a first time director's attempt. I wonder if that could be done more artfully uh, and and present everything. I think that there there could have been more done um, with something. The, the direction could have been different. Uh, I think they at some point they just slid right into you know sort of uh, uh, you know primetime tv cliche uh and it, it it just it didn't work i think you could have uh really um i mean there was so much there was it was so interesting what they did with the with the dingus's trip to the afterlife um part of the movie uh i don't know why the the parts that i that i found particularly jarring had to had to use such you know uh, recycled tropes you just don't like seeing doctors portrayed as buffoons mm yeah, well, the afterlife. <laughs> uh, do, do you know Bruce? A movie called—it's uh, a cartoon, so you may not know this. Uh, a movie called My Neighbor Totoro, a Miyazaki movie. 
Uh, let's see, which are the ones that are like that that I know? I know Princess Mononoke. Well, no, see, those, I would say those don't. I mean, the Miyazaki things are very, are very different, but specifically, my neighbor Totoro no, I don't is, is about it's about a child coming to terms with with death and sickness of a parent, the sickness and death of a parent. Um, and it's also specifically about these big, huge beasts. Oh, wait and, a minute! I think I did see that. Is it is it the the child sort of gets kidnapped or something, and she goes away to a to this like alternate world and there are these no things. no that's one of those oh, that's uh, spirit that's spirited, spirited away. away yeah no, oh, my, na- away, my neighbor okay, totoro yeah. is, is also structurally similar in that my neighbor totoro the first parts of it it's just children playing uh it's just animation of just kids playing and just establishes this kid's world and only later becomes about you know death and sickness as as the kids sort of be aware, uh, learn of it, and, and are aware of it. Uh, but uh, I, I, I just think of that movie as like I wonder if you would have some of the same problems with that. It, it is depends a on how film, so. depends on how the. I mean, with with animation, I think you have, I, I think you have a um, another way that visually you can present the uh, the quote buffoonish end quote uh parts of the movie in a different way you can uh, stylistically and, and visually you can uh you can sort of give the give the viewer cues um i think to have the actors act in a certain way um kind of um undermines the other uh, undermines the, the the setting so. see i would what, what i would for for me uh what uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild offers that my neighbor Totoro doesn't offer is the human element. You know, seeing this little girl's face, seeing uh, the guy playing Wink, seeing the cast, seeing the woman playing Miss Bathsheba. Uh, that there's so much humanity here that that you can't do with a cartoon. A cartoon can do great flights of fancy, uh, mm-hmm. but I just wouldn't trade it for the world for the the stuff you get in, in Beasts of the Southern Wild. No, oh, I wouldn't trade a lot of things for the stuff you get in Beasts of the Southern yeah. Wild. Um. Oh my God! The way the way the father looks at her. There's two moments where he looks at her. It just broke my heart. Uh, there's the moment where she punches him, and the look on his face. And and then there's a moment where they're they're looking for survivors, and he spies her eating a leaf. It's right before the carp moment. And the look on his face when he realizes, uh, I I need to teach her how to survive when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. That guy is just amazing, and you know I, I give a lot of credit to the director because when you're getting those kind of performances out of a child and an amateur, you have yeah. to give a lot of. Uh, I mean, you, there's nothing you can you you can't fake the kind of power she has as an actor. I mean, that's impossible. She's just right. lightning, and uh, and he's amazing too. But I give a lot of credit to Ben Zeitlin. That's a good point. Uh, and that production design, good lord, I love the oh. look of it, and just the, the, it even, I didn't even realize that their raft was the back of a pickup truck for a yeah. while. Isn't yeah. that great? I <laughs> love that. I don't know if that was ever a reveal, but when I finally noticed that, I was like, wow, that's awesome. Uh, and just this sense of, I wouldn't say, I mean, it was in a, in a, in a way squalor and poverty, but, it wasn't portrayed as something miserable or squalid. Like it just really... no. It came across more like Mad Max. There yeah. was a very sort of post-apocalyptic vibe to it, wasn't There's a there? Freedom to it. They're free yeah, yeah, system. yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you start to hear helicopters, for instance, like when that when that starts to appear, there is this sense that they're living outside any world that we've ever known. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I just love the way that they expressed that with the production design. Um, 
And just that, just, you know, the, the faces of that, because it was all local hires down there in Louisiana, I mean, just the, it's so nice seeing extras that aren't a bunch of people from Los Angeles who are wanting <laughs> to get in TV. I mean, just their faces, all those faces in the, in the movie. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just, and that all is part and parcel of the sense of place that it has. And don't they at one point show a map of the bathtub? And it doesn't, like, you, yes. they, yeah, and it's clearly not like, uh, you know, you're not looking at like a map of the, the the Gulf Coast, as far as I could tell. Like they clearly show that this is some fictional place that that you've never heard of, right? Wait, what? Well, no, no, no. The bathtub is is uh, an actual uh, is uh, an actual island. They just no changed the name. What? I don't you, think you they can would... see it when you're marching past the sign. They, they, it's like the uh, Isle de, de Jean Charles. Right. Like what that. I'm saying is that's not a real place. Like it's not Louisiana. When they show a map, you're not looking at a map of Louisiana, right? Wow. I, you know, I'm, I know. I'm not sure about uh, that because that, cause I, I'm picturing the map in my head and it has these big markers across that. It's and then the stylized left. enough for Tom's theory. Yeah. Well, you're you can't right just make don't... up maps, right? I mean, that's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> that's paper. <laughs> to get from somewhere. It's hard copy. <laughs> yeah. You can't you know the amount that. of labor that would be involved. Yeah. And but, Kelly Wan accused the Aurochs of being CG a little earlier. I have to take issue with well, that. Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Those were real confused. There's so much CG. Oh. The world. Wait, well, that... so Dad didn't die at the end because he fixed the autopilot, right? One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees, and I'm going uh, between counting. One, two, three, Peter, Paul, Mary, three, <laughs> Oh, juicy and delicious. Now I get it. <laughs> Wait, Bruce wasn't done talking. By the way, pra praise to Bruce for bringing up the music, because I freaking loved it, and the director did part of it. So good job, yes. Bruce. It, oh, I'm, I know, I'm glad I could add something to this. <laughs> I'm, uh, all right, so Kelly Wan, in the final analysis, who won you over more, me and Dingus or Bruce Garrick? Uh, everyone, you're all right. <laughs> and that's that's well, Bruce, the kind of world you, we you, live in today. Bruce was just more you, bothered by the same thing. Like he's right, but he, for him it didn't work. Like, and for me right. it was you know a small price to pay for the sense of place. And, right. Because yeah. you are cynical adults, and Dingus and I still have the wonder, the childlike wonder that that comes with appreciating the world. But I love the dad. It's hard to be cynical with that dad's character and acting in it for me. Do we know? Are any of these people? doing new projects like are these people going on to become professional actors and they're going to be in a transformers movie somewhere down the line do we know that's what you'd want wouldn't you because every time it's like jennifer lawrence was in Wintersville, and you're like yeah she's gonna be an x-men it's great like really <laughs> no, we're never gonna see her in another good movie it's just gonna be oh, what about hunger games that's true it was, hunger games was awesome i'm sorry i just called it hooker games it was <laughs> oh god uh, we we do know that the the two leads are going on to uh to be in something else. I don't know how big parts they're going to play, but they are in another movie. Another uh, movie by whom do we know? Yeah, by a director we both love um, named Steve McQueen. Ah, very good. I'm looking forward to that. It's what? called Twelve Years as a Slave. I don't know anything about it, but Corvinjane Wallace and Dwight Henry are both in a uh, remake of Bullet. No, see, Steve McQueen is an Irish fellow who did a movie called the No. I'm thinking of Hunger Games. Oh, The Hunger, right? No, just oh, Hunger. Just Hunger, right. He did a movie called Hunger and a movie called Shame featuring Michael Fassbender's dong. Did you see that, Bruce? No. I only see your Michael brain Fassbender. 
Bruce wins. Uh, Kelly Wan, what do you have for this week's three by three? Which is actually a three by oh who, oh this is Dingus's oh this seems like some this isn't yours Kelly Wand no I did oh. uh, character lose out their own character last week that's right so this is Dingus's three by three which is actually a three by four yeah. Dingus what do you have for us this week although it should be a four by four I still think no because that uh, well we could have runners up yeah let's let's just keep it a twelve it always has to be a square never a rectangle Tom we talked about this before that night Knuckles <laughs> pickup. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'm uncomfortable with that. It's a bathtub. Dinkus, <laughs> uh, anyway. what do we got this week? Well, I, I didn't want Bruce to feel like he had to uh, put a whole lot of his uh, CPU mental cycles into this. So this is very simple. It's just your favorite uses of alcohol in a movie. Bruce, how do you feel about being talked down to like that? Yeah, uh, I'm fine with it because I, I put a special... Uh, has put a special limitation on my uh, ability to choose these, uh-huh. and I completely disqualified one category of use of alcohol. And I'm curious to see if anybody else uh, took the easy way out. No, I didn't. I definitely uh... lubricant. Because <laughs> two of mine. Sorry, br- uh, sorry. Bruce, no, I, grown up. I I definitely did. Uh, I didn't want to. I did something a little different as well. But so Bruce, yeah. let's start with you. Let's. You know what? No, let's start with who's next week. I'm doing next week. So we'll start with me. Bruce will save you for the penultimate. Okay. Uh, so uh, what I did is I didn't want to just do drunk people. I didn't want to just do cool scenes with drinks. I want to do something where alcohol was used specifically in an unconventional way. So these are literal uses of alcohol that, that I appreciate. Oh. See? <laughs> literal. <laughs> as opposed to drinking it. I get it. As opposed to just showing somebody drunk. You, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, what I like, it's what I like about it is how they use the alcohol. So here we go. I'm going to start with my, uh, my number three. Uh, so in Born Supremacy, uh, Matt Damon gets shot, and he's running from the cops, and in, in part of the chase, he goes through like a grocery store. I think it's in Moscow. Uh, and in the grocery store, he picks up, and you don't know what he's doing. It's like, hey, there's cops after you. What are you going to do? He's just stumbling through, and he's hurt, and he picks up a, uh, like a dish towel and a map and a bottle of vodka. Um, and... When he goes out at the other end of the, the grocery store, there's, like, security tries to stop him, and he portrays himself as a drunk by just taking a swig of the vodka. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I didn't get the chance to watch it, but I think he, like, spits it out in one of the security guard's faces. Like, he yep. uses it to do a kind of a spit take to help him escape. And then, of course, he later does the typical thing where he just pours it on the wound to sterilize it. Uh, but the fact that, that Bourne is so smart, you know, that he's not just going to use the alcohol to do the typical sterilizing the wound, but he's going to do a spit take into a guard's face to escape. Uh, that's my number three choice. Hmm. So which one of the two? Or is it, is it just both combined? Uh, well, it's, it's mainly the fact that he, yeah, the, the spit take. The the. Should- yeah, the escape so between the teeth at the guard. I don't think he's just like he's not doing that. It's I think it's like a full blown. It's like a, it's like a right, like that kind of it, thing. Yeah, it's like using pepper spray. He just right, yeah. exactly, Dingus. Yeah, it's like orally you put pepper, pepper spray in your mouth and spit it out between your teeth. It's exactly <laughs> like that. You've been on that date, I'm sure, Kelly. <laughs> I'm on it right now with Bruce. <laughs> you cock blockers. <laughs> oh, you just made me think of Dane Cook's use of alcohol in London. That that movie that you uh, that I see and then don't remember anything about Kelly Wan. Oh, Dane Cook's in it. He's he's in it and he has a great line about cock blocking when he's sent off to get a drink. 
I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a use of al- so that use of alcohol to get Dane Cook out of the way. Mm. <laughs> That's my number one that. choice. Oh, yeah, mine too now. <laughs> All right, so uh, there's my number three. So next, uh, let's see, Kelly Wand, what is your number three use of alcohol in a movie? And did you uh, apply any sort of restrictions to yourself? Uh, I started to, and then I forgot what I my criterion was. That'll happen. So I did yours for the first one, where I try to think of an interesting use, or a literal use, as you called it. Right. Your literal use of the word use. Uh, and my number three choice was... In Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, when the tequila worm uh, possessed Craig T. Nelson with Mitt Romney's ancestor. What? And then he had, I think it was a good use by the Mitt Romney guy. Kelly One, are you fielding questions for this one? No. It's because it's so self-explanatory. I think questions would just waste people's time. I do vaguely recall like the haunted worm, but I don't recall Mitt Romney. Being- it gave a sinister look. Uh, right before it went down his throat. Also, that character had never drunk before in the movie. Before that, even though his daughter was in the TV, which you think that's like when you bust out the good shit. But I guess they didn't trust the fridge. Anyway, so the worm's use of the alcohol it was swimming in before Craig T. Nelson swallowed it and then got a Mormon uh, guy inside him. What's I, I'm real curious about the Mitt Romney thing, but okay. Uh, that old guy in the second movie who sings Holy Temple, God's Holy Temple, Chris Elliott. I, I know the the words you're saying individually, but old I'm not going <laughs> He's one of the casualties of the curse of poltergeist. And he, what does he have to do with Mitt Romney? He's like a, it isn't he's in a cave in Utah and they're singing uh, Mormon hymns and then they all die and then he possesses uh a kid and so I see. So just anything related to Mormons is like a Mitt Romney thing. Well, I thought they were in Utah, in the cave, because this isn't at the state with the caves. <laughs> You're thinking of Orrin Hatch. The salt cave. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Bruce knows <laughs> what I'm talking about. Bruce All right. Politico. You're Bruce, welcome. What do you have? What do you have to top that, Bruce? Third. Uh, that rocket surgeon. <laughs> I I can't top that. So I have um. So the um. The restri- I won't tell you what the restriction was, but uh, the, I, the restriction was not that people right. couldn't drink alcohol. Because I think drinking, you could still drink alcohol, and as, as Tom's uh, initial one kind of pointed out, you didn't really drink it. I guess spit it out, fine, whatever. But um, that's from uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, although not one of the best movies, uh, Constantine, oh. when uh, the, uh, the priest, the teetotaling priest, uh, goes ah. and uh, runs into that um, uh, convenience store and starts opening, just breaking bottles of uh, alcohol and trying to drink them. And the uh, the demon guy uh, makes him feel or believe that he's not drinking, so he keeps, you know, he's trying to trying to drink, but he can't. Uh, but of course he is, and he ends up dying of alcohol poisoning. So uh, I think the the on, Un, uh, unconventional use of alcohol there is uh, in uh, as a uh, as a murder weapon, but uh, you know he's not doesn't get drunk, so I thought that that was a fair use. Now, will you be fielding questions for your three by three picks? Uh, let me check with my agent. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so my question is: You've seen Constantine? Wow, Constantine. Constantine. Yeah. Oh, is it constant? I thought it's just he calls himself John Constantine. Does he? 
Yeah, I, I, I just I think that's Keanu Reeves just not knowing how to pronounce things. I wouldn't trust him to pronounce his character's name in a movie. Is it really Constantine? Constantine? I don't I believe so. I don't what, know. Whatever it is, know if it was I, I, didn't, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. I, I, wasn't gonna, I wouldn't show, <laughs> shown up here if I was going to be quizzed on things. But you've seen that. First of all, that's a great well, pick. More than once. I know. I'm so excited that you picked this and that you like this movie. Yeah, I really like six movies. You only see six six movies, and that's why. Well, there are six good. This is my theory that I've espoused espoused to you guys many times, but uh, I'll just, for the sake of the audience, there are six good movies. The rest of the movies may be movies that you like, but there are only about six good movies. And Constantine is one of them. No, it's one of the movies that I like. Ah, okay, good, good. Can you name Bruce for extra points the actor who dies of alcohol poisoning? Can you name? Can you give us two of his three names? Uh, Zach Galifianakis. That's three. Three. So that is the great Pruitt Taylor Vince, and I might have screwed it up. Is it Taylor Pruitt Vince? Dingus, help me out here. Oh, the great Robin in Dark Knight Rises. That's Pruitt Taylor Vince, and Tom. Can you name the demon? Balthazar. Yes, exactly. Balthazar played by Kelly Wand. Can you name who plays the demon? Uh, Fred Gwynn. <laughs> You're terrible. It's, it's the it's Gavin, Ro- Gavin Rossdale. Ah, uh, Gavin Rossdale's. He's good. The lead singer of Bush. Primus. Bruce Garrick, can you name the president after whom Bush is named? Uh, <laughs> Grant George Herbert Walker. You see, that's the thing about Constantine, is you can go down these extreme rabbit holes talking yeah. about that movie in a way that you can't with other Keanu Reeves movies. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was pronounced rabbit in holes. <laughs> uh, all right, awesome. so uh, Dingus, what do you have that tops that, and did you put any restrictions on yourself? Uh, yeah, I just uh, very simply said that it's not uh, a drunk thing. It's not about drunk. Okay, mm-hmm. so so far... It's uh, about shit yeah, no, oh, no, except for Craig T. Nelson. Nobody's gotten drunk yes, yet. We got possessed, time. which is a form of drunkenness that's no longer in vogue. Good point. All right. So, so far, no drunkenness. Let's see how long we can sustain that. All right. So, Dingus, what is your number three pick for uh, best use of alcohol that doesn't involve drunkenness? All right. Here's a quote from it. Mm-hmm. It's impressive to see a man feeding off his emotions. Um, body snatchers? Wait. Um, I, don't, I don't like that quote. Batman, little boy. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. It's not from the actual scene, so I'll go ahead and give it to you guys. And this is a, a longstanding, um, this is part of a longstanding, I don't know, feud or disagreement that I have with Tom over, over which is the best joke. And this is from the movie Seven, mm, directed no, by David Fincher. Thank you, Bruce. Seven's not one of the six, obviously. Sesvenzine is what, how it's called. Yeah. And in Sesvenzine, um, William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, comes over to his new partner, his new police partner, not, you know, his gay partner's house, to have dinner with them. Or legal and, partner. It's not like they own a law firm together. Right, right. They're not in business together. They're just policemen. And he comes over to David Mills' house, played by Brad Pitt, and they have dinner, uh, a weird little sort of uneasy dinner where they're breaking the ice, they're getting to know each other, and, and he's getting to know uh, the wife. And after the dinner, they sit down to talk about the case. And Brad Pitt says, I'm going to get another beer. You want a beer? And Morgan Freeman just says, I'll take wine. And David Mills goes into the kitchen, grabs himself a beer, and then pours himself a huge, pours uh, his his partner a huge big old glass of wine, but like in a water glass. He fills a water glass full of wine. 
And he brings it back to David Mills and sets it down in front of him, and they go on talking. And then this subway car goes by, shaking the house, which is a callback to an earlier joke. And Morgan Freeman picks up the glass to make sure it doesn't spill over. And he just has this wonderful little look at it, like, that's not what you do with a glass of wine. You, you don't pour that much wine into a glass. And so I love that little moment where Morgan Freeman just looks at that glass of wine. Okay, so Dingus, if that moment takes so much explanation, it can't possibly be as funny as you think it is. <laughs> second You're of right. all, second of all, our point of contention is that I think the funnier joke, it's the same joke, but it's funnier, was made what, like 25 years earlier in Jaws, where <laughs> where uh, Martin Brody is pouring wine uh, that Matt Hooper has brought over, that Richard Dreyfuss has brought over, and Roy Scheider is pouring it. And uh, Richard Dreyfuss briefly thinks that he's pouring the glass for him, and he tries to wave him off and say, do you want to let that breathe? And then he realizes, oh, no, he's pouring his own glass. Uh, so I think the Jaws counterpart to that is way funnier bruce where do you fall on this issue i'm just delighted that i have seen all the movies that you're talking about <laughs> you've seen seven <laughs> and jaws okay yes which yeah. one has the funnier reference to improper use of wine um well jaws is from the 70s which was a dark time in america so okay. they can't really be funny if it's movies from the 70s that are funny are really also you know somehow um foreboding so i would say seven probably because, you know, everybody was, like, happy and rich in the Clinton era. That's so why he doesn't like Jaws, because it was a too dark a period. And no, anyway, I, that joke I, is about I, letting wine breathe. It's not about that. He's, uh, sharks uh, breathe water. No way. <laughs> That's alcohol to them. Wait. Some of my favorite parts of this podcast are seeing the workings of Kelly Wan's brain. Like the, the fountains that... about a fountain, these sort of wild flood. Or... And that thing that exploded the dam or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> See, Bruce, uh, I'm just pretending to be a dumbass, though. I'm secretly yeah. uh, No, that's clear. I could have been a doctor. Uh, all right, so seven. Uh, it's a good pick. Dingus, I hope, by the way, I haven't scooped your number one pick with uh, Jaws. No, no, I opened the door when I when I uh, introduced our little feud. All right. Uh, write us at uh, at quarter to three at... No, wait, at movie no. podcast at quarter to three.com. Let us know which you think is funnier, the seven joke or the Jaws joke. Uh, we'll, we'll tally the care. votes and, uh, and uh, let you know the results next week. Uh, my number two pick for best use wow. of alcohol in a movie. A lot of motivation to do it. <laughs> it's going to tally it. Oh, you have to do so, it seven days. The winner time. will receive an autographed picture of Kelly Wand. Again, let's see. All right, whatever. Now people are going to do it, and then I have to care. Then right. you'll have to cut that thing out of Computer Games Magazine that one time. Right. And sign it. Yeah. What? Uh, my number two pick is uh, use of alcohol. Uh, so when you go to a wine tasting, you spit the wine out in a vat because you're not actually drinking it. So there's that scene in Sideways when Miles is so upset uh, about uh, I forget if it's his book not being published. Still my number two. Yeah, it is. No, you're right. You're right. It's, it's he's finally gotten the notice from his literary agent that. And, and, and so he's been drag he's gone to this sort of second rate winery uh, with his friend Thomas Hayden Church and he's just so angry that he wants to drink a whole bottle and the people are like you can't drink that and he gets into sort of a dispute with the management and just out of frustration he takes that big old spit vat and just drinks out of it um, 
And it's just disgusting. And the whole point, by the way, is that this character is, for the most part, very refined and cares about great wine enough to where he uses, he juxtaposes the words Marlowe, Merlot, and the F word. Uh, we don't use explicit language on this podcast, so I won't say that. But the fact that this character has gone to such a low that he's going to drink out of the spit vat, and just how gross that scene is, too. Uh, it's like something out of a Farrelly Brothers movie. Doesn't he pour it over his head? Or am I misremembering? I thought he dumped it on his head. He, he pours it into his mouth from the spit bucket, but it's it, it's, it's such a huge pour that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, man, you make me want to barf, Tom. It really is gross. Let's move on. thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, like what, what is your number two pick for the uh, best use of alcohol in a movie? My number two is from Sideways, but it's when uh, Paul Giamatti is describing wine to seduce Virginia Madsen, which to me is an awesome use of alcohol, because he's just talking about it, and he's not even drinking it, and he's getting that. Kelly Wand? Just saying those. Are you chewing gum? <laughs> so, really, Sideways as well? Or you're, you're just... Yeah. All right. Wait, is that for a line from Sideways? Is what? Yes, yes, that was a line. All right, strawberry. Yes. <laughs> Dingus, do the line about the ostriches. They're assholes. Oh, sorry, we don't. Is that the line? Probably not. No. Uh, all right, so uh, Bruce, can you give us a line from Sideways, and then we'll have a quattrofecta. Um, was that a documentary? Actually, have you seen Sideways? I don't know no, that that's one you know. No. All right. Uh, Dingus, or what's his name? Bruce. Mm, oh, Bruce would wait. like Dingus if he saw it with him. Mm. Uh, Bruce would like Sideways, I think. Yeah, uh, I think he would. All right, well, if, if, if you haven't seen Sideways, Bruce, then what is your number two pick for use of alcohol? We know it's not Sideways. So my number two pick uh, for the use of alcohol is, or, sorry, unconventional use for, uh, for mm-hmm. alcohol, is uh, from a movie with uh, Jake uh, Hall. Um, <laughs> Mr. Gyllenhaal. Yes, yes, yes. Which I saw because I thought it was going to be about Sputnik. <laughs> and it wasn't. Oh, I, mean, it was I, know about Sputnik. This, I know where this is going. Yes, right, right. Yeah, it's basically yeah. kind of Bernie's. It's ultimately about okay. the space shuttle. Because didn't he go on to launch a space shuttle? Uh, well, the... Yes, sort of. That's what the movie would have you believe when it ends yes. with its little. Boy, talk about yeah. mawkish and sentimental. But by yeah. the time it ends with its little title cards, you find right. out, oh, this guy went on to launch the space shuttle. That's what the movie would have you believe. Yeah, that doesn't happen in the movie, but yes, you're right. right. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, they do do in the movie Can is. I say the name of the movie. I don't, I don't the think movie is October Sky. About Sputnik. Uh, about the reaction to Sputnik. <laughs> and a one kid who decides that he, that the. America's just as good as those darn Ruskies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's going to make a rocket, and uh, just like the Russians did. And uh, the only problem is he's not really sure how to do it. And so uh, they have a whole bunch of uh, crazy hijinks. And um, one of the hijinks involves uh, getting moonshine and uh, using it as rocket fuel. And that uh, does not succeed in uh, putting an American uh, spacecraft in orbit, uh, but uh, it does qualify as a non-drinking use of alcohol that's unorthodox. And it's also regionally appropriate, because if I'm not mistaken, it's all about, like, his father's a coal miner. miner. Yes, absolutely. This is like an Appalachian community, and naturally they would use moonshine for rocket fuel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why we didn't get to the moon during Prohibition. Good point. 
There should be a documentary about that yeah. with Robert McNamara. Most things I say should be documentaries. <laughs> Thing is, what do you have to top October Sky? I really can't. I, I love that choice because I had totally forgotten that usage of alcohol. Well done. Mm-hmm. We have to top everything the last guy said? Yes. Yeah, it's like a pyramid. Exactly. The Ponzi scheme. Uh, oh, okay. Now I understand your analogy. Mm-hmm. All right, my number two. I'm not going to bother to quote it, although I have tons of quotes from this because the, none of you will, will get the quotes. So oh, come on. Give us the easiest quote. I, might I resent that. Yeah. What's the easiest quote from the movie? There's got to yeah. be one. Uh, I don't know. How about this? Uh, nice state of affairs when a man has to indulge his vices by proxy. Seven? Uh, uh, Tinker Taylor. Wait. Fred Forte. All right, here's the specific reason why I chose this, because I love this scene, and, and this is when the char- when the character in question says this. Oh, come, man, pour a decent one. I'd like to see people drink. What? Are you even speaking English? I'm not, actually. <laughs> oh, come, man, wear a decent one. I'm here to pour, see... Pour a decent one. Oh. He's talking to his butler. Come, man, pour a decent one. I'd like to see people Butler? Drink. Nobody has but. Gee, Dingus, what... Is this some grandpa movie? Or is it a day. New Deal? It's from 1946. Oh, good Lord. We just lost Tom. <laughs> Actually, wait till you see here my number one. My number one is from 1946. Wait a minute. Dingus, what? hold on a second. Yes, it is. Dingus, you are going to be in so much trouble. Give me other lines from the movie. I, there's no way you picked this movie. Here, here's, the, here's another line. Um, I, I enjoyed your drink as much as you did, sir. Kane Mutiny? No, it's Lord. Okay, so I think I'm okay. I don't think you've picked my 1946 movie. Kane Mutiny has the scene where the guy gets the drink in the face. Um, and that's right, not your number one. That is not. My number one is a different one from 46. So, okay, Dingus, I don't think you've picked mine. There right, will this be is a more, movie huh? directed by Howard Hawks called The Big Sleep. What? Ugh, nobody knows. You don't know The Big Sleep? No, no, the thing is, nobody knows what's going on in that movie. It's an incomprehensible movie. No, they no, but- killed the chauffeur. That's like the one loose one. But Isn't before sleeper? you don't know the not sleeper. <laughs> yes, I'm talking about the orgasmatron because I think that that is <laughs> sleeper uh, no. makes sense compared to sleep. <laughs> the big sleep, and before uh, Tom's objection, before you know you don't know what's going on or your known unknowns are, right. are fulfilled. Um, uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, Philip Marlowe, has to go to General Sternwood's house uh, to find out about what General Sternwood wants. <laughs> it's so funny. You're already losing everyone. He's trying to explain. Yeah, General Sternwood. Yeah, General Sternwood. He's this old guy who has to live in his uh, greenhouse. I thought his name was Lebowski. It's, yeah, it's about General Lebowski. And General Lebowski loves white Russians, but he can't drink them because of his health. So he uh, he calls uh, Philip Marlowe in to tell him about the case that he wants to hire Philip Marlowe for, and um, and he has his uh, his manservant butler whatever uh, pour uh, Philip Marlowe a brandy and says how you like a brandy sir in the glass. And the thing about this general is he can't drink and he can't smoke. He can't enjoy any of this because of the debaucherous life he's led. All he can do is sit there like the spidery old man and watch somebody else drink and gain pleasure off of watching them drink. And um, Humphrey Bogart sits down in this hot, hot room, and and uh, the, the general says, go ahead and take off your coat, uh, and then gets his butler to pour him a proper brandy and hand it to him. And 
and says, you can smoke as well. I'm not allowed to do any of these things anymore. My son-in-law used to, used to sit here for hours with me and I could enjoy watching him drink my alcohol, but he's gone now. And this is part of the case that Marlo has to solve. And Marlo comes in to be a proxy for this man's vices. And just the way that guy, uh, General Sternwood plays that that moment, watching Philip Marlowe take that first drink, and he licks his lips, and his eyes seem to drink in what uh, what Philip Marlowe is drinking in with his mouth. And and when he leaves, he said, I, "I enjoyed that as much as you do." It's so creepy and and sensuous and weird, and I just love that scene with alcohol. That because alcohol plays such a big part in all those old movies, especially those Philip Marlowe movies. And, you know, Bogart was known for dealing with that as, as made fun of, like, in something like Play It Again, Sam. But just watching him enjoy that alcohol and the filmmaker, Howard Hawks, making a comment on the fact that, yes, we do this in our movies, and you're enjoying it while watching him enjoy it, as this general is. I love that moment where the general says, you're, you're going to drink, and I'm just going to creepily enjoy it. Yeah, you all right, that's creepy. All right, you you creeped us out, Dingus. That's what I was doing. Yeah, Sternwood. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, a 1946 movie that no one's seen or understood. Good. I, read the I book. agree. I agree with the second part. Actually, am I mis- am I mistaking? Uh, am I confusing Maltese Falcon and Big Sleep, or are they both incomprehensible? No, Maltese Falcon. Is, is thoroughly is thoroughly cohesive, um, but Big Sleep is hard to understand, and uh, and Big actually Sleep has is... has to do with Faulkner. And I, damn it, I wanted to bring up Faulkner when we we're talking about. Him. Mm. All right, too late now. Yep, too late. Yeah, you you squandered all your time talking about General Sternwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, my my number one pick is from 1946 as well. I think it's 46. I meant to look this up, uh, and I forgot if it. <laughs> now, uh, if it's not, you'll have only wasted nine minutes. No well, uh, it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Notorious, uh, in which the MacGuffin is a bottle of wine. Um, and you don't know why, and you don't know why anybody... It's The, the movie's about uh, Ingrid Bergman being hired by Cary Grant to uh, ferret out some Nazis in Rio de Janeiro right after World War II. Uh, and we don't really know what they're doing or what they're up to. She's supposed to investigate this. But we see early on that it has something to do with a bottle of wine, because like some guy reacts with alarm and points at a bottle of wine, and there's a close-up of the wine and him pointing at it. And there may even be like a musical cue. But we just know that there's something about that bottle of wine. And then we later find out that you know Claude Rains, who is the one who's harboring the Nazis, he doesn't let anyone have the key to the wine cellar. So, you know, we know, bottle of wine, wine cellar. Uh, and eventually they get down there. And I'm going to spoil, by the way, notorious for anyone <clears throat> listening. Uh, it's not wine at all. It is... A song Uran- by Duran Duran. What? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, notorious. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm not up on my Duran Duran, so I'll have to take that one on faith. <laughs> if I had to put money on the, the first person to mention Duran Duran on this podcast, I don't think it's it would have this. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Tom. No, what, what notorious, it, it is, it's notorious. It's uranium sand in the bottles of wine. It's not alcohol at all. Psych. It's radioactive sand. That's like 130 proof instead of... Well, the thing is, interestingly enough, Kelly Wan, the thing is, this was right after... Uh, World War II. You know, they, they changed the MacGuffin in the script because, hey, we had just dropped this nuclear bomb on Japan, 
everybody is like wondering what's the deal with this. So that Change became the line too. that well that became the MacGuffin is you know let's have radioactive uranium. This is mm. the Nazis still trying to get a nuclear bomb. You know even after World War II, Nazis who've run off to South America are actually trying to develop a nuclear bomb. Like that was the MacGuffin in Notorious. Godzilla uh, was also created by wine, and then they had to rewrite it. That <laughs> <laughs> didn't play as well. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty embarrassing. Uh, all right, so there you go. I don't often get movies from 1946 on my 3x3. Three three, time but... as Dingus. Yeah. yeah. It was, see, already that's a good year, for better year for movies than this year. By the way, there's a lot of drunkenness in Notorious. Not only that, but there's drunk driving. Early on in the movie, Ingrid Bergman gets trashed and is driving around drunk uh, and gets pulled over, and Cary Grant has to reveal to the cop that he's a CIA agent, so they should let her go. Uh, like, the movie approves of her drunk driving. But then, and I didn't remember this, so then he reveals to her, you know, now she knows, hey, you've got some sort of special pull with the cops, what's the deal? She then finds out that he's a CIA agent, and she wants nothing to do with him. She's like, get out of the car, you're just trying to use me, I don't want anything to do with you. And she's all struggling and fussing. To calm her down, he punches her and knocks her out. <laughs> you can't do that in movies. What? Why? That's not cool. I get, yeah, but he's a CIA agent. It's kind of. I, get, I mean, it literally is like you know, it's like the thing where the. He's like, getting her back for the drunk driving. I guess so. I guess maybe she's hey, paying it forward. It's the only language she's going to understand. But that, it's it's just like weird seeing her like fussing and he's trying to calm her down and he's finally just like he just hits her really hard and she faints. Uh, What's he supposed to do? Give her a shot? I don't know. Reason with her, maybe. I don't know. Reason with her, Tom. It's 1946. <laughs> yeah. Another time. There's still a war almost on. All right. Well, Kelly Wan, what do you have then for your number two use, uh, or your number one use of alcohol in a movie? I think I already did this one on something else, but I wanted to impress Bruce with it. So okay. that's my number one. Mine's also from 1946. It's John Carpenter's The Thing. And <laughs> uh, remember at the beginning, he's playing the chess computer, and it, it checkmates him, so he calls it a cheating bitch. And then he pours the bourbon in it and destroys the computer so no one can play it. Ah, gotcha. But it's in his own personal quarters, though. Who else That's would have been true. using it? The only person who's being deprived of use of the computer is him. Or they and all have the a different one. Yeah, the thing can be. And, the and maybe. Right. But then at the end, uh, it's him and Childs, Keith David, and then. Oh, they have alcohol, don't they? They have alcohol, yeah, and he gives them the alcohol. He, he offers it to them. So it's like if, the, if Childs is the thing, the arc has been. Kurt Russell's character learning to become a more graceful opponent and or loser. Because he hates when the computer beats him, but at the end, he gives the alcohol to his opponent, the thing. And then they, now, yeah. I actually, a little bit of trivia, I know a third use of alcohol in that movie that is not widely known, and this is a true fact. Uh, so the special effects were done by a fellow named Rob Bottin, who's done a lot of great stuff since then. Uh, Actually, nothing quite as good as that. But anyway, he's a, he's a special effects guy who really got started with the thing. Uh, the blood they used in that movie, like the fake blood, because they were shooting in authentically cold temperatures, they had to keep it from freezing. So they cut their fake blood with alcohol. And apparently, I think this is on the director's commentary or something, like, like people would surreptitiously be drinking the fake blood to, <laughs> to get drunk. <laughs> uh, so no, that... Uh, so that's a, that's a third use of uh, alcohol in that movie, Kelly Wanto. I've smoked my blood, but never drunk it. <laughs> nice. Bruce thoughts. 
<laughs> hey, can you renew my weed card? Never mind. <laughs> it's you're living in Canada now. It's all free. Yeah, I know, but it's we more, need more from you. Sure. And nitrous oxide. <laughs> Bruce, off. what is your number one use of alcohol in a movie? So this is for Kelly Wand. Uh, I chose it because of Kelly Wand. Uh, now that he's officially Canadian, a Canadian citizen, and born in Canada, and will live in Canada for the rest of his life, um, I thought that I would uh, choose a movie that has two Canadian uh, oh, icons slash yeah. superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were uh, sort of big in the uh, comedy scene when we were all, um, you know, that age when that was really funny. <laughs> Oh, I know what you're doing. Yeah, they're superheroes. Yeah, yeah they pretty much are. Um, so these two, uh, these two cats, um, they uh, infiltrate this brewery because uh, they're the uh, the people who are uh, who are running the brewery are going to use alcohol to uh, control the world. Mm. Would you say that it's an unconventional beer? Or an or a, an odd draft. It's a peculiar <laughs> concoction. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think we all know where we're going with this. Um, it's but see, here's the thing: it's the additive to the beer that actually control that uh, is uh, the mind control. It's not the actual beer itself. Um, it's not the alcohol. It's the uh, it's the thing that they do to it. But uh, still, uh, you you drink the beer and they can uh, and it's mind control. You take over the world. So uh, I'm talking, of course, of uh, as you guys point out, Strange Brew by Bob and with Bob and Doug McKenzie, uh, who were really funny when that kind of stuff was funny. By the way, doesn't this movie also have? I don't know if is he's the villain, star of Virgin Spring, the Ingmar Bergman movie. Isn't Max von Sydow he the villain? Is he's yeah. not he's not just the uh, he's not just the star of Virgin Spring. He's uh, he was Max von Sydow's uh, was uh, Bergman's you know actor. I mean, he was the knight in. Uh, in Seventh Seal, for God's right. sake. Yep. I mean, he was uh, he was a lot of things. He was in uh, Wild Strawberries. He's just in a lot of things. Was he he was. I think he was. He was the Mufune to Bergman's Kurosawa. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so. Uh, oh. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So it's, it's very. It's very highbrow. So I uh, that. that so Bruce Garrick, what let's talk about Strange Brew a second. What who was the heroine in that? Didn't did they have some oh, fits, uh like love interest? What what became of her? Yeah, Lynn Griffin. Is that true? Did you just make that up, Kelly Wand? No. She that's played really... Pam Elsinore at the Elsinore Brewery. Oh, that's right, because it was a Hamlet thing. I forgot about yeah, that. The, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, Strange Brew, very much like Lion King, is based on Hamlet. Yes. Yeah. But not with animals, but with Canadians. <laughs> No way it was ahead of its time. I do not remember who the who the. I'm just. I remembered it pretty well. Remember it. Uh, you're right. Lynn Griffin is Pam Elsinore. Wow. What wow. name of her? So Kelly Wan, what kind of where can we see her these days? Uh, she was in the movie Strange Brew, <laughs> and she's in Warehouse 13 as Dr. Nina Golden. Oh, so she's doing a little TV. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. She was also in Dream House, which I think you liked. The Daniel Craig thing. Yeah. She played Sadie. In that. I, I sense that you're reading a, an IMDb page. No. <laughs> it's just reeling off stuff from that, that photographic memory you've got. Nice. I got like 30 more I, didn't, I mean references <laughs> I, in my brain that I could cite. 
All right, Strange Brew, good. I like that. I like that Bruce knows what Strange Brew is. I do too. I just like picturing Bruce having to sit around this week yeah. thinking of movies and then turning over and over in his mind Strange Brew again. I just yeah. I, that makes me happy to know. And that. And he did it for me. It's like a love letter to me. And mine was a love it letter. Kind of is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can we go? Well, come on. What, what's his online nickname? nickname? Let's not. That wasn't not too hard. What? What? Yeah. What? His nickname. His online nickname was Sternwood. If I remember. Okay. <laughs> Dingus, what is your number one pick for uh, use of alcohol in a film or motion picture? Don't forget, you got to top that. Yeah. I'm not going to top that. I I feel horrible bringing it up because it's kind of going to bring the room down a little bit. Oh, God. Uh, We're pretty far down already. All right, here's a quote from it. Breathe out. Just think about the out. Just breathe out and push. Push as well. Just out and push. Out and push. What, some drunk woman giving birth? That's Dingus, that's weird. The Fly, too. Wait. There's somewhere... Oh, uh, Prometheus, where she does the thing with the robot. Dingus, you're doing terrible movie lines. Breathe out and put... I don't know what that is. All right, this is the movie that inspired this uh, category, and I saw it some time ago when I was doing another 3 by 3 It's a movie called Children of Men, and it is from... There's no alcohol in that. Uh yeah, I think there is. Uh, There's so not that many children either. So Theo has the little bottle of alcohol he always has with him. You see him in the very first scene when he gets his coffee in the morning, and he stops and he pours. Ah, right. He pours from his bottle into his morning coffee right before the first explosion. And, yeah, and see what that see where that gets you. Yeah, exactly. And so then he gets to uh, the point in the movie where he leads leads Key up these stairs because she's just about to give birth, and they're in this awful dank, gross, flop house-like apartment that this gypsy girl, gypsy woman leads them into. And he puts Key down on the mattress and he says, I'm just going to wash my hands over here. And he, he sticks his hand in this bucket that's been sitting in this room. And I just think, oh my god, what is that bucket like? I mean, uh, they don't show you... Uh, um, gosh, I'm blanking on the... on the Alfonso Curran, I guess. Doesn't show you the gross, the requisite gross picture of the water. You just know he's he's washing his hands, and then he moves, and he kneels down in front of her to help her give birth. Um, and as he's instructing her on breathing, because she can't handle it, she's in a huge amount of pain, she can't handle what's going on, he takes out his bottle of, of alcohol, and he, and he holds it up kind of close to his mouth as he's instructing her, and I think, oh... He's just going to take a swig from this to steal his nerves. But instead of doing that, he pours the alcohol over both of his hands, pours all of it out over both of his hands to sterilize them. I don't know if that's the proper word, Bruce. Uh, and then puts the bottle down and helps her deliver this baby. And it's that little moment. I love the way that happens because you start the movie knowing that he's got a dependence upon alcohol. And you get to that point and he uses the alcohol for something else. Wow, that's a good one. You know that that was actually my um, my criterion that uh, I didn't want to just uh, think of uh, like westerns where uh, somebody got shot in the leg and then uh, somebody right. got uh, you know. Some, but that was that's a great uh, that's a that's a great uh, way to get out of that since it's uh, it's actually meaningful in, in the movie that uh, you know he's addicted to alcohol. Does that work in real life? Like, if we get shot, should we pour a bottle of whiskey on the wound? Does that help? Uh, depends. Um, it would, uh, you know, you may want to just drink the whiskey. That won't sterilize the wound, though. See? No, but it'll maybe 
won't hurt as much. <laughs> so as Wait. an anesthetic, it helps, right? Uh, but if you does that is for reals though, as as uh-huh. an actual doctor, if yes. I pour out, does that do something? If I actually pour beer or whatever into a gunshot wound, am I somehow helping myself? I wouldn't pour beer into a gunshot wound. What about uh, whipped cream? Uh, <laughs> only if you're going to lick it out afterwards. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, the... I like my blood straight. <laughs> I, I think that the uh, the the um, proof of the alcohol is, uh, is important. Uh, one of the problems you run into is that um, I think you devitalize some of the tissue uh, when you... Uh, when you uh, pour alcohol on it, so thickened. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. You know, I don't. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I've never been in a situation where I had to. Um, uh, you know what? I, I don't. Never know been shot in the leg. Never. Been. <laughs> I've never been in a situation where I had to. Uh, Canada. Decide whether I whether I needed to uh, to pour alcohol onto my uh, onto my gaping wound. Uh, but if that ever happens, uh, I'll let you know how I uh, how I decided. All right, well, I'm going to be, yeah, the fact that you use the term devitalized tissue, that, that makes me that, think that might not be Tom a good vomit. idea. Yeah. Tom's the most repulsive adjective for Tom. Devitalized. I don't think I've ever heard that word, and I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, and so if it's a matter of the, the proof issue, the worst-case scenario is, say, beer that you buy in Utah. Yes. It's not what well, you would want to use. Yeah, that's want. If you buy tequila in Utah, then you get possessed. By Mitt Romney. I still don't understand your Mitt Romney thing, Kelly Wand. Go but, watch the movie. It's foreshadowing okay. Uh, okay, the way I'm, the Louisiana license plate and Jaws foreshadowed Katrina. Wow. Okay, I'm going to move that to the top of my queue. I'm going to check out Poltergeist 3 and see if you're right. But in the meantime, let's do some runners up. Uh, so uh, let's see. Superbad's Quest for Alcohol, I quite liked. Uh, oh. al- alcohol as a MacGuffin. Ah, oh. fuck. there is no way that that, that alcohol is not going to taste like detergent. I'm so mad. That's the one thing I'm mad about, other than the cops. In the movie. Wait, what? That alcohol's not going to taste like detergent? Good alcohol. They end up they end up transporting it in huge in two huge Costco side oh. bottles that they emptied out. There's alcohol's no way to get all the detergent out of those. Uh, it will devitalize the detergent. Actually, uh, <laughs> the proof's in the pudding. It's rum pudding. Uh, Dingus, you didn't pick any, anything from With Mail and I. Yeah, we give. Uh, or Midnight Run. Midnight Rum. Uh, the one I was going to choose was, uh, and I'll give you guys a quote from it. Yes. But it's not the whiskey that you would have heard from that line, but it's from another movie, and it's whiskey. What? And that would, that would be from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, good Lord. That's PG-13, and you can't have alcohol. Yeah, that's, no. Oh wait, wait! Is that the drinking scene with Marion and the Russian woman? No, it's actually when when he's uh, struggling with the uh, Himalayan dude at the bar, and he asks for the alcohol and pours it, uh, and yeah, she lights it. And... You know what? I was trying to think of something like that where somebody used alcohol, like for a Molotov, or or does he pour a trail of it or something? Well, it's well, That's the so alcohol's been running all through this, and then he and then they they light this line of fire that that gets right. that dude. I like that. Okay. Uh. But I do like that that idea of, of her with Belloc and, and him saying this is my family label, so that's not bad. But it is two people getting drunk, at least one getting drunk, and I went I went against the whole idea of getting drunk. But she's not really getting drunk, and neither is he. They're both scamming each other. 
Bella. See? So you could have used that, right? Yeah. Oh, Kelly. Uh, uh, how about Dennis Hopper's fantastic product placement in uh, Blue Velvet? I thought that was uh, gas. Yeah, it's nitrous. Yeah. Heineken, oh, not alcohol. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm thinking of the Heineken Pabst Blue Ribbon. Oh, yeah. Is, it, is oh, yeah, that yeah. Blue Velvet or is it a... That's, yeah, no, that's, that's right. That's Blue Velvet. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, uh, I'm awfully fond of, as far as like movies about alcoholic excess, uh, Nicolas Cage's opening shopping trip in Leaving Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I have that as a runner-up. I'd say thing. the whole movie is a good use of alcohol. And that's, a great way to, to. <laughs> and that's a great way to introduce it. Yeah, that's sort of... If you're the, trying to make a change in your career, Leaving Las Vegas has all the answers. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just, yeah. just going to go off about uh, you know people drinking and the use of alcohol movies. I mean, my, one of my favorite movies uh, is a movie with Mickey Rourke about drinking and writing. Oh, God, you and... Oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Sin City. No, good lord, Kelly Wand. Uh, the part, part, no, just Sam, not Sandusky. Bukowski. Bukowski, good lord, yeah. That seems yeah. like that would be right. I hate Barfly. Do you? Uh, no, Barfly. Really right. No, because Barfly is this. Um, it's Tom, like you don't hate Barfly. You just feel better when it's not around. Uh, <laughs> I always thought it was pronounced I got Barfly. <laughs> uh, no, it's one of those like this. Those kind of like naive idealized movies about the writing process and the struggling artist and how the glamorous woman will recognize his genius and it, the whole thing just felt awfully contrived I mean I like it yeah it's terribly contrived recognize it alright yeah but it's fun it just seems like it seems. here's my thing about Barfly I will bet that Charles Bukowski would hate oh guaranteed Barfly yeah okay yeah, and absolutely. so so that just seems that just brings a little false to me oh so did he you're, yeah your oh, new he wrote a book about writing it. He wrote Hollywood novel. Your about new criterion it. for movies is that if the person that the movie is about doesn't right. like the movie, then it's a bad right. movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody related to the movie objects to their portrayal in the so, movie, <laughs> that's why Tom doesn't like the movie W. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because I can't imagine that Condoleezza Rice appreciates the Urkel impression that was used to represent her in W. Otherwise, that movie is completely a documentary. So the Nuremberg Trials is bullshit because Hitler wouldn't have liked that movie. <laughs> wow, Kelly <laughs> won. You just Godwin to the podcast. Nice work. Uh, other runners up for a uh, great use of alcohol. Nobody brought up. Here's a nice oldie, but a goodie. Uh, is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from a stage play, though? Or is yeah. it just a straight? Okay, yeah. so that doesn't count. What do you mean? What does it doesn't count? Why? It's just a play. Oh. So, so the the or so this is interesting. So now, also the origin of any movie has to be the origin of the of the medium is actually what it is, right? So any movie made out of a play is always a play, even if you watch it on TV. Like no, *Piece of the Southern Wild*. You know what it is? Ah, it's, interesting. It's, How about I that, always, Tom Chick? Well, that's yeah, but that was from *Juicy and Delicious*. It was adapted. You see, uh, if, if the movie was called *Juicy and Delicious*, then we would. Yeah, besides, none of us knows what it was. It wasn't even even uh, *Juicy and Delicious*. Dingus, wasn't it like a one-man play? It's just like one person up there talking, right? You I don't, don't know. I know it's a one-act play. I don't know. One act. Oh, that's I'm confusing one act and one man. All right, but at any rate, uh, like I always am sort of struck by people who think that who just know *Glengarry Glen Ross* as a movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a great movie, but it's because it's a great play, largely. Uh, you know, other things are great about it, but I sort of feel that way about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I love that movie. I love both, uh, uh, what are their names, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in that. Uh, who, isn't George Siegel like the the dude in that, like the younger yeah, couple? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, I love that, but and I think it's brilliant, but I think it's largely brilliant because it's a great play, and they just happen to get great actors and then film it. Uh, so, I, I, I don't know. I just feel a little cheap about uh, 12 Angry Men. Isn't that even a play? Like, there's all these great older movies that people know as movies when really they're just plays and they shot them. Same as Hamlet. Same as uh, yeah, there's, there's no good movie versions of Hamlet other than Strange Brew and Lion King. <laughs> Uh, that's how I feel about California Sweet. Like, people don't know it's a really awesome play. <laughs> I was actually fired from a production of California Sweet, Kelly Wand. What do you think of that? Did you play the Bill Cosby part? Or Jane Fonda? No, Bill Cosby was... That's just... typecasting, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, are you guys ready for next week's 3x3? Are we? Okay, Bruce, unfortunately, you won't get to participate in this one. I won't. But you're welcome to think it over. over I'll think about it while, while you guys are probably recording. I'll be thinking about it. Good. Oh, okay. Uh, here we go. Here now, I'm going to take off the table a great instance of this three by three and a crappy instance of this three by three. When uh, at the end of the awful movie Munich, uh, which is about like. See, just even that, you just say that, and that's funny. Uh, but at the end of the movie, uh, which is about terrorism and how you respond to terrorism and what's appropriate and whether or not you should think about the fact that you were a Mossad agent gunning down Palestinians when you're having sex with your wife, like that, those kind of issues are what are addressed in Munich. And then at the end, during the big soul-searching moment, uh, we are shown a shot of the Twin Towers in the background. That right there is a use of a famous landmark in a movie, and it's awful. It's so awkward and clunky. It's kind of appropriate for the movie, but I just hated that use of a landmark. It was just so heavy-handed. Now, I want to give you a, a great example of uses of landmarks, and that is the end of Planet of the Apes, You know, where you see the tip of the Statue of Liberty sticking out of the sand, and you realize, oh, it's Earth. It's a spoiler, by the way. Uh, so what I want from you guys are great uses of landmarks, not crappy uses. And I'm taking off of the table Planet of the Apes because that right there I think is a great example. Uh, you know, it's it's there for a reason. It's a famous landmark, and it even tells you it, it's a key part of the story. Um, you know, we frequently see landmarks in movies. For instance, in the Total Recall remake, they show Big Ben at one point just to emphasize, hey, they're in London. Uh, so what I want from you guys are meaningful uses of landmarks, three of those, if you can come up with them. Uh, question. Mm, okay. <laughs> what about the World Trade Center at the end of AI, the other Spielberg movie? World Trade Center. Does that count? Well, you will have to let me know, Kelly Wand, next week All when right. we do our three-by-three. Three. Oh, right. I forgot it. <laughs> See if it's one of your uh, three picks. I got yeah. myself mixed up with Bruce. I just had to think. Uh, there are all kinds of landmarks, and I just want three great uses of landmarks. Just be natural landmark, man-made monument, or neither, or both. If you want to use Close Encounters, you're welcome to. Nice. Oh, one question. Yes, Bruce. Could it be a like a a landmark that we all know but doesn't necessarily exist right now, like um, like Mount Doom? Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> That'll exist someday. Like <laughs> Uh, I would say it should be an actual landmark, but you know what? I I will allow so actual, actual landmark. Yes, actual landmark. Hand uh, but Mount Doom so, is so Kelly not on the moon. Sorry, Kelly. What? Oh, right, because the moon's uh, CG. <laughs> so do with it as you will. Uh, that's the three by three for next week, and we will be seeing uh, a movie called Lawless. Oh. Why are you go Why are you doing that, Kelly Wand? Because I didn't know Shia LaBeouf was in it. Uh, Not about Xena, don't worry. 
I'm not sure I knew that either. But it's the guy who did the proposition, which is a brilliant western. So what's the other one he did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a Cody Smith McPhee uh, movie. Let's not. Yeah. Uh, so you know what? It could go either way. We'll find out. So uh, see that and join us next week along with our three by three for uh, best use of landmarks. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by uh, I wrote it down so I can pronounce it. Uh, Christian McCluskey. Very close. It's Christian Morosky. Kelly Wand. I'm sorry, Bruce. <laughs> Bruce, thank you for being here and uh, putting up with Kelly Wand. Tom, you're my Canada. Oh yeah, yeah. Is there a can a can anecdote this week? Yeah. In the elevator this morning, a chick uh, flipped me off with her eyes. Also, some chick also told me that Canadian Z in the alphabet is Z. And I go, wait, why don't you just Z? She goes, no, see, listen, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That's because Canadians are the original zombies. Bruce, what do you think of Dingus tonight? I, I, I'm going to go over there and smack you in the face. That's against the rules. That's a plus for me.